When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson. And if you're listening to this or watching this, then chances are you have made it through the transition from the Gospels to the Book of Acts. Congratulations. That's a hard thing to do. As we said last week, it's tough to come down from the mountaintop. And who on earth could possibly follow Jesus? Well, poor Peter, he had to, and yet he did an incredible job. Uh, we'll spend some more time with him today, but he, we're starting to spread beyond his immediate influence, which is a good thing. Uh, not good that we're leaving Peter. Peter's incredible, and we'll see some more of his actions today. But good because the growth of the church is so fast and so far that he can't do everything himself. Uh, last week we saw him and John heal the lame man from the temple. Well, not only is the lame man leaping around, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is leaping beyond borders. If you remember Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said, you're going to teach in Jerusalem? Check. You're going to teach in Judea? Check. We'll see more of that today. You'll teach in Samaria, and that will be fulfilled today. In fact, the gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. And by the time we finish today, it will, it will be heading in that direction. As far as the known world in that time period, Ethiopia was the end of the earth. And we will meet an Ethiopian eunuch today who's one of my favorite old characters in the book of Acts. Uh, so if you're making this transition, if you're falling in love with Acts, then mission accomplished from last week. One of you in, the, in a comment shared how excited you are for the book of Acts, which is a new thing for you. I'm thrilled. Uh, the, the, the second half of the New Testament will be an amazing time of study. Another of you in a, in a comment shared something amazing. Never, I never thought of, so thank you for this. Uh, I had complained last week that the, the word Acts is a horrible uh, abbreviation of the, the real name of this book. And yet you gave me an incredible acronym that if ACTS were seen as an acronym rather than just stuff, deeds, things that the apostles did, it sums up the entire book. And so, for thank you to one of you. Your acronym was ACTS, Apostles, Christ Teaching Through the Spirit. And that sums it up beautifully. We saw the Spirit shed forth upon the Apostles and others last week at the day of Pentecost. To this day, we still refer to incredible outpourings of the Spirit as Pentecostal experiences. Uh, and so, I, I'm hoping that we can have Pentecost every week as we study. Uh, as you, I know these lessons are long. We're going verse by verse to try to cover as much as we possibly can. So I uh, encourage you to break this up through your week uh, and, and enjoy. Today we will be covering Acts 6 through 9, and these are amazing chapters. In fact, if you don't have time for everything, I would actually skip to the second half, even over the first. First half's amazing. We will see an ecclesiastical development in a short chapter, chapter 6 followed by a long chapter, chapter 7, with a history lesson that's amazing, and a martyrdom to finish it all off. And then the second half, chapter 8 and chapter 9, oh, they're amazing. 8, there's so many stories here. In 8, we'll see Simon the Sorcerer. In 9, we will see the 
healing of Aeneas, the raising of Tabitha, and most importantly, the conversion of Saul, who will then carry us through most of the second half of Acts, as well as the second half of the New Testament with all of his letters. Uh, important, important things this week. So buckle up, get ready, and, and let's dive in without further ado. Acts chapter 1, like I said, we're spreading beyond Peter's immediate influence because Peter can't do everything, okay, as much as I'm sure he wished that he could. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, so we are, it's not just addition here, it's, it's full-on multiplication. We saw a conversion of 3,000, a conversion of 5,000 last week. We talked about people being added to the church daily. That's how, that's how much, how fast the word is beginning to spread. So disciples are multiplying. But there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now think about it in these terms. More people usually means more problems. It's a good problem, but it can be a problem nonetheless because there's greater friction, especially when things start to spread beyond borders. Now when a, when a family, well, when a church feels more like a family, when things are small to the point that you know everyone and it's a a relatively homogenous population, uh, people that see eye to eye on most things and have most things in common culturally and so on, then there's less friction. But as soon as you start bringing in people that are different from you, then friction can increase. And like I said, good problem to have. If you are struggling in your ward over differences, well, congratulations. There are the, your ward has brought in people from different backgrounds and different perspectives, and that can be a very rich, beautiful thing. It, we need to have some of that friction to rub off our rough edges. And as Elder Maxwell said, we are one another's clinical material. Okay, So we are experimenting on ourselves and on each other, uh, trying to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. No better way to do it than that. Here, though, it's interesting that it's Grecians against Hebrews. Now, we still haven't spread to the Gentiles yet, okay? We're going to see you know, the person put in place today and then the, the, the doctrine put in place next week. But, so this is not Greeks like Gentiles versus Hebrews as in Jews. No, this is more Hellenized Jews versus less Hellenized Jews. The Grecians would be those that are you know, Greek-speaking Jews, typically from, from the diaspora. If you remember our very first lesson at the beginning of this year when we covered kind of the historical context of all of this, thanks to Alexander the Great and his military power, and then Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle and their philosophical power, Greek culture spread across the Greek Empire. And it stayed long after the Greek Empire went the way of all the earth. And so to think about those Jews that have been scattered around, around the, the empire, speaking Greek, reading their Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Greek, the Septuagint was their version, uh, and thinking Greek thoughts, though believing Jewish things. Well, you have those, that side of the church, and then you have this more, I mean, a Jew's Jew, a Hebrew's Hebrew, who is speaking Aramaic rather than Greek, who is much more tied to the old ways. In our day, we would think progressive and conservative. And as I've mentioned multiple times throughout our study, those seem to be the divides that cause the greatest friction within denominations to the point that divisions are erupting. I mean, as we speak right now, the United Methodist Church is splitting in half. 
and arguing over who gets what properties and which chapels will go to the more progressive side of the, of the denomination, a new denomination that is, and which will stay in a more conservative half of the United Methodist Church. Uh, that is happening across the board in many ways, even if there's not a, a, a distinct denominational split. But we're getting to a point, or we're at the point already, where a conservative Baptist has more in common with a conservative Methodist than they do with a liberal Baptist. So forget denominational lines. It's like political lines are dividing them in half. And if you get a sense here of these different cultures clashing, those who are more open to the outside world, they've been Hellenized, uh, and, and philosophy flavors some of their perspectives, versus those that are like, oh, no, 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 I'm true to the old ways. And, and any change would be a departure from the truth. Now, the challenge here is if they can't handle this within Judaism, how on earth are they going to respond when the Gentiles start pouring in? Uh, in our day, how do we respond over black-white divides, racial divides, culture divides, uh, again, political divides, class divides? Last week, we saw over and over the saints coming together in one accord. Living the law of consecration, getting rid of what they have, eliminating their possessive pronouns, and thinking of others more than they thought of themselves. That is Zion, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. Well, as chapter 6 opens, we start to see this divide open up, a breakdown of unity. And notice it's over widows, the least of these, the most vulnerable and unprotected, the ones that need others to stand up for them and help provide. And that's what they're doing. So again, a good problem. We've, we're consecrating, are we making sure that the water's getting to the end of the row? Are we making sure that those who need most, we don't want those giving their mites, we want them receiving way more than a mite, because they need it more than anyone. But notice the way it's described. The, Greece, the Grecians are against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected. And again, is this class divide? Uh, is this culture divide? And wait, 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 how come those widows are getting more than these widows? Or to use the possessive pronoun, how come their widows are being taken care of better than our widows are? And I think the concern here, again, is with those possessive pronouns. Rather than fully seeing each other completely as one, our ways and their ways and our people and their people. No, we need to be in the unity of the faith. Well, verse 2, that's the goal of the twelve as well. And so that's what they do. The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, interesting phrase. It's not reason, so this doesn't make sense. It would be illogical of us to leave the word of God, their ministry of the word. We were told by the Lord to go preach the gospel, teach all nations, baptizing them, bringing them into the fold. And that's what we're trying to do. But to stop all of that and try to lay to rest these kind of internal divisions, uh, the way they phrase it, to serve tables. Now, that's an interesting way to say it. Uh, more accurately, you could say to feed the hungry. But the fact that they, they used those terms to serve tables, it's as if you're turning us into waiters. And that's all we're doing. I'm your server. I hope you leave a tip when, when things are done. No, that's not what we're here for. 
We are here to distribute the bread of life, not, not these kinds of more mortal forms of manna. So, on the one hand, I, I wrestled with this phrase, serving tables, because it really did strike me this time around. And I wondered if it reflected the attitude of the apostles or the attitude of the people that they were attempting to serve. If it's on the apostles' part, it's like, come on, I don't have time for this. I have more important things to deal with. And I wonder, is there a little bit of pride from above? Like, are you turning me into a mere server, a waiter? On the other hand, because I want to give the apostles the benefit of the doubt, although they were human, I wonder if this reflects the attitude of, of the people. As if, kind of, kind of snap your finger, and what's taking so long for the server to show up? Why haven't they filled my water in a while? Oh, they're not going to get a very good tip. And I wonder if consecration has been going so well. So many people, like Barnabas last week, have been giving their all. Uh, especially after Ananias and Sapphira's tithing settlement. Uh, people much more serious about giving all that they could. But I wonder if the recipients of that are, are having a certain sense of entitlement to grow within them to the point that they're like, come on, come on, where's, where's the thing, where are the things that I need? And turning apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ into mere errand boys or, or again, servers. I know that this is servant leadership. I know that the chief will be servant of all. But if we presume upon that, then in some ways this could be a possibility of what Elder President Benson described as pride from above or pride from below. If it's the apostles thinking, oh, I don't have time for things like that, that's pride from above. If it's, come on, chop, chop, apostles, what's taking you so long? Hurry and serve me. Oh, then that's pride from below. And we need to overcome pride either way. But notice their solution in the next verse. Wherefore, brethren, to solve this problem, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In other words, we're going to have a division of labor here, and coupled with the twelve, there will be seven. Now, in the church today, there is a quorum of the twelve apostles, and then there are seven presidents of the seventy. And the seventy then can be multiplied as much as the labor of the vineyard requires, as the Doctrine and Covenants explains. But to see this division and the different responsibilities that they have, another division that we see in the church today is the presiding bishopric. And that might be a good example for this as well, because they're in charge of the temporal affairs of the church. In some ways, if you were to divide things spiritually versus temporally, you could divide things Melchizedek versus Aaronic, because Melchizedek priesthood is responsible for the spiritual things in the church, and the Aaronic is responsible for the temporal things of the church, though there's plenty of overlap as far as the Lord is concerned. Everything's spiritual to Him, right? DNC 29. But to see this, this separation of power uh, and this divide and conquer, so to speak, as far as ecclesiastical responsibilities are concerned, but I will say, for this to work, everyone has to be willing to, to make those distinctions and separations. Uh, again, pride from above, pride from below, there can be a struggle with both of that, where those in positions of authority feel like, ah, it, 
if you're going to do it right, you got to do it yourself. And so I'm not going to delegate to others because I, I can't trust them to do as good a job as I can. Elder Bednar actually pushed back against that and said, we usually do that because A, we want it to turn out well, and B, it, it, it'll save time. I know how to do it, and if I just do it myself, all is better. But Elder Bednar pointed out, and this is someone with a PhD in organizational behavior, okay? So he's, he's well qualified in all areas to discuss this. But he said, saving time, that's only true mm, the first and maybe second time that you do it. By the third or fourth, because you are still doing it, it would have been faster in the long run to go the slow route at first, train someone else to do what you're doing, and then and help them through it, maybe do it with them again a second time, but then beyond that, you are now able to divest yourself of that responsibility. You can delegate it, and they're up and running. In fact, when Elder Bednar was called to be stake president in Arkansas, the first thing the General Authority told him was, President Bednar, your first order of business is to train a multitude of men that can take your place. And Elder Bednar was, was aghast. Are, are you, I, I've been a stake president for like a minute, and already you're planning on my, my successor? Yes. And you should plan on that as well. Uh, to see the types of people that will be called, notice the qualifications, they must be honest especially if they're quote-unquote serving tables. If they are doing the, the temporal affairs of the church, then honesty will be absolutely key. And then full, remember we saw that word repeatedly last week. If you're full of the Holy Ghost, no wonder you can be bold because there's no room for fear in you. It's already spilled out over the top. And these men will be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So it's not just the honesty, but the wisdom to know how best to use what is being consecrated to bless and build the kingdom of God. Now, the seven that they will name are exactly that. And then by, by accepting these responsibilities, living into them, the apostles can focus on things that only apostles can do. Now, like I said, on the one hand, people above must be willing to give to people quote-unquote below. I know there's not above and below, but you know what I mean. On the other hand, the people need to be able to accept quote-unquote lesser leaders. And sometimes that's a struggle. Sometimes bishops can't delegate because people will not, will not allow anyone but the bishop to help them. Now in some areas, you're right, the bishop can't delegate, but in so many others he can. We need to be willing to accept the counsel of a counselor in the Elders Quorum Presidency or the Relief Society Presidency understanding that whom the Lord calls, he qualifies. And if we'll trust mere mortals, we'll be able to lighten the load of everyone. I was talking with a few friends recently who were just feeling so crushed by the weight of responsibility they had in their callings. And is there sometimes resentment, whether in themselves or among family members, of how come the church is always taking you away from me? I used to joke that that's why God created eternal families, to make it all up to everyone. Okay, I'm going to take you away from each other a lot during mortality, but you'll have each other forever in eternity. Well, they're a little tongue-in-cheek, but they may, I, there's some truth there. But we need to be able to spread the responsibility, but that means we need to come to trust everyone. And that's something I think we need... We've got a lot of room for improvement in. When, at one time when I was serving in a bishopric, the bishop said, okay, here's a division of labor. Repentance issues only I can handle. 
but I want to be able to give them more of my attention. So if it's, oh, marriage and family counseling kind of issues, Brother Halverson, I want you to take care of that. And if it's financial issues, budgeting and so on, then the other counselor is a, is a genius when it comes to that. So please, can you help with that? And I thought that this is, this is inspired, Bishop. This is wonderful. This will help lighten your load. My only concern was, will people come to me? Will people come to the other counselor? Will, will they take that delegation seriously? And I'm, I'm always impressed with my ward. Best people in the church. Uh, they're amazing. Just like people in your ward, I'm sure. And they did take that invitation. And they took counselors seriously. Beautiful thing. Now, verse 5, notice what happens as they call these individuals. Here we get their name. The same pleased the whole multitude. And you get a sense of common consent there. Is this okay? Are you, are you, are you fully invested in this? Are you willing to accept other people as your leaders? And they, they were. It, this idea pleased them. And here's the seven they chose. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, Exactly the qualifications that were required of him. No room in him for fear or doubt. And we'll see that played out incredibly in the very next chapter. Next, you have Philip. And that's a different Philip. We had Philip the Apostle. Now we have Philip. These men aren't given a title, by the way. But by the end of the book of Acts, this Philip is referred to as Philip the Evangelist. So maybe that's a way to describe all seven of them. Other scholars call them the seven deacons. Because deacon is someone who helps run the temporal affairs of a church. In our church as well. Deacon being that first office within the Aaronic priesthood. So you have Stephen and Philip so far. And then a bunch of names that we hardly know anything about. Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. And you get this detail about Nicholas. A proselyte of Antioch. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they, the apostles, had prayed... They laid their hands on them. And so here you see a laying on of hands, either to ordain to an office in the priesthood, or to confer the priesthood in general, or to set apart to a calling, or all of the above. But it's through the laying on of hands of someone who already has authority. Again, whether they're being ordained as deacons or as evangelists, whatever it might be, they are given power from those who already have it. Interesting thing to realize about these names, though. They're all Greek. They, if it's an argument between the Grecians and the Hebrews, the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speakers, the church up to this point... I mean, think about the original 12 apostles. And you get... They're all Jews. They're all Jewish Jews. They're from, well, from Galilee, uh, from Judea. These are men who have names like Levi and Simon and Judas, which is just the Greek spelling of Judah, a good solid, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Hebrew names. And yet Nicholas and Philip, remember Philip the apostle, he had a Greek name, which is why the Greek proselytes came to him, hoping he could lead them to Jesus. That was John chapter 12. Well, all seven with Greek names, are we starting to sense a shift? It's the Greeks that were complaining that our, our widows are being neglected. Well, let's make sure that you have a voice in the council. Let's try to balance things across these divides. Let's bring in different perspectives. We want to hear from you. 
Diversity can be a wonderfully good thing. We are one in essential things. We can be different in non-essential things. And we must have charity for one another in all things. And so they come together. As of the end of today's lesson with the conversion of Saul, and next week's lesson with Peter's vision of the unclean animals not being unclean after all, we are at, on the cusp of a dramatic shift in Christian history as we go from Jew to Gentile, not just Grecian Jew, or not just Hebrew Jew to Grecian Jew, but full on house of Israel now opening its doors to those outside the house, bringing them in. It's as if the Simon is becoming more Peter, as if the Levi were becoming more Matthew. The names are shifting here in an interesting way. And the one that fascinates me, even beyond the two that we'll get to know better today, Stephen and Philip, is Nicholas. We don't know anything about him other than what's said here. He's a proselyte, which means convert, and he's from Antioch, which is in northern Syria. Hmm, the gospel really is spreading to the point that someone so far beyond the geography of Judea joins the church and is brought into a position of authority. It was beautiful to see the calling of Elder Uchtdorf, to see the calling of Elder Gong, Elder Suarez. Uh, and it's just a matter of time when, as the kingdom spreads to fill the earth, to find those from all across the globe brought into positions of general authoritieship, responsibility over all. It's beautiful. And then verse 7 and 8, the word of God increased. Of course it can. We're, we're increasing leadership, delegation, uh, more people can be involved, and so the work can go forth from there. And as a result of that, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Again, Nicholas being a prime example. And then notice this, this is even more shocking. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Here you have even Jewish leaders recognizing the fulfillment of their faith and embracing the greater faith that is laid before them. They, the light bulb is coming on and they are realizing maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe we were the ones that were a little oh, myopic to think it was only a military messiahship that, that the scriptures were prophesying. Especially Jesus rose from the grave, conquered sin and death. What more could we ask for a messiah? And consecrating saints, what more could we expect from a messianic age? So the, even priests come and accept the gospel. And then shining the light on one of these seven in particular. And Stephen, full, there's that word again, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Nice to know that you don't have to be an apostle to perform miracles. It's more about power than position. And how does that power come? It comes through faith. It comes through righteousness and worthiness. So what do we see so far? Just in these first eight verses. I've shared this with my wonderful evangelical Christian friends because they're the ones that are most quick to jump on Latter-day Saints to say, you are not Christian because you have what, new prophets and apostles? Huh? It's only the biblical ones. And speaking of only the Bible, you have additional scripture and you can't do that. 
And so by adding scripture and by, by having modern versions of ancient leaders, you are outside the Christian fold. To which I will often respond as kindly and calmly as I can. You sound a lot like a first century Jew toward the Christian church. Because in that case, the Jews were saying, no, 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 you are not Jewish. Quit claiming that identity. And what's cut you off is the fact that you are claiming some kind of oh, divine leadership, and that's been confined to the past. Post-Malachi, there are no more prophets, and all we have are the ones that are written down in our book, the Hebrew Bible. And you can't add to that. There can be no living prophets or apostles. There can be no additional scripture. And to my friends, I would say, what do you think you would be missing if somebody back in the first century had not been willing to see, wait a minute, these apostles agree with our prophets. And this additional scripture actually confirms the scripture we already have. Huh, maybe Jesus was serious when he said, I've come to fulfill and not to destroy, to transcend all that's been given, but to include all that's been given. And bring them into one great whole, an open canon, ongoing revelation. Huh. God is continuing his work, as always. I mean, the simplest syllogism here, or analogy, is Judaism is to Christianity, as Christianity is to the restored gospel. And if we can help people see that, I hope, if, if nothing else, it gives them pause to ponder what would a first century Jew be missing if he just held to what he had. That's what makes me so impressed about these priests. They held to what they had. They, they were fully converted to that, fully invested in that, and yet seeing, had to have an open enough mind and an open enough heart to consider the possibility, does it fit at all? And those with an open mind and heart to open a Book of Mormon and see, this really agrees with the Bible. And why wouldn't there be modern apostles and prophets if that's how God worked in the past? Maybe these Latter-day Saints are Christians after all. <laughs> or to, to rewind the analogy, maybe these Christians really are Jews. In fact, maybe they have recognized what Judaism was preparing us for and pointing us toward all along. That, that will take some openness. And we'll see those that are open to it, and we'll see some that are closed. For example, notice verse 9 and 10. Then there arose certain of the synagogue. So here's some Jews, and will they be open to the new or protective of the old? Well, let's see. This synagogue, which is called the Synagogue of the Libertines. Now, with a name like that, we might think of these as some kind of Oh, moral reprobates that they just accept everything and it's moral relativism and so they're libertines in the way they live their lives. That's not the case. A better translation here would be freedmen, the synagogue of the freedmen. That's where you get liberty or libertines. These may have been former slaves. They may have come together to worship out of their own shared experience. They're Jews, but they've been freed from slavery and they're seen Oh, they're coming together into this synagogue as a result. And yet, oh, if you'll learn the truth, the truth will truly set you free. 
you want to be libertines in the in the right way you want to be freed men then come unto christ he is the true deliverer but they're not open to this these people joined by Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia. So you have people all over the, the diaspora as well. And what are they doing? They are disputing with Stephen. See, these groups cannot see eye to eye. Stephen has a new perspective. These ones are holding to the old perspective. And so we will not change over these things. You've got it wrong. You're destroying law. You're not Jews. These are the ones that hold firm and, oh, you Latter-day Saints have ruined everything. We cannot accept you into the Christian fold. And yet, notice the last line, they, these others, were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spake. I mean, he was full of those things after all, to the point of spilling out onto them and they can't resist it. Yes, they can Bible bash. And I'm sure that's what a lot of this boiled down to. That, no, 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 the Bible says, in their case, the Hebrew Bible says, the Old Testament says, and, and we will not go beyond it. Malachi was the last of the prophets. That's all there is. And Stephen pushing back and saying, oh, yes, but Amos did talk about a famine in the land. And yet, Jeremiah promised that there would be a new covenant and a new heart placed within you. There's everything. I mean, in some ways, there is no New Testament yet. Even the Gospels have not yet been written. But for someone like Stephen to, to know his Hebrew Bible, he's a Jew too. And yet to see in it, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree then. This is a matter of biblical interpretation because we're looking at the same scriptures and seeing two different things. That applies in our, in our day as well. But I love the fact that they can't resist his wisdom. I may not agree with you, but I do see the internal logic. That's not the way I interpret scripture, but I can see that yours is a possible interpretation. That's typically how I try to deal with interfaith dialogue, especially with my Christian brothers and sisters to be able to honor their interpretation and hope that they'll honor mine. Hope that they'll at least acknowledge that there is some wisdom. This guy's not making stuff up off the top of his head. He's not abandoning the Bible to come up with something new. Huh, this is biblically based, even if it's not based in the historic interpretation through the Nicene Creed and the Creed of Chalcedon and the, and the Council of Ephesus and all these other Christian creeds. Now, the Latter-day Saints don't embrace those, but they do embrace the Bible and do have an internally logical explanation of their interpretations. That's not resisting the wisdom. And then perhaps even more important, are we filled with the Holy Ghost to the point that people will recognize at least our sincerity and our spirituality? that we're not trying to ruin things for other people. We're not being unchrist-like, even if they call us non-Christian. Because the Spirit is something that softens hearts and builds bridges and smooths out wrinkles and lessens friction. Under Maxwell called it the lubricant of love. And if we can approach those with whom we disagree 
in a loving way, the way the Spirit would want us to. The Spirit can resonate within both souls and help us, even if we don't see eye to eye as far as our understanding, we can come to be more understanding with one another. And I think that's an important step. As Elder Hales used to say, the worst thing we can do when somebody accuses us of not, uh, accuses us of not being Christian is to respond to them in an unchrist-like way. Because then we've proven them correct. They're like, yep, I knew they weren't Christian. Look how they act uh, towards us. No. We need to respond with compassion, with charity, with kindness, with love, to the point that they cannot resist the spirit that is in us. It reminds me of 3 Nephi 7, verse 18. Such a beautiful verse. Speaking of Nephi. And it came to pass that they were angry with him. Those that were opposed. This is the day of the Gadianton robbers, right? And so, uh, this, this Nephite prophet, we are so angry at what he's preaching, what he's prophesying about. But what made them more angry than anything is what happens next. Even because he had greater power than they. And he's, we're not talking political power, though that's what the Gadianton robbers were always after. No, this is spiritual strength. Because it says they, it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words. For so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. How's that for someone who is filled with the Holy Ghost and with power? <laughs> to the point that his enemies are like, Ugh, I hate that guy because I believe that guy. I can't not believe him, but I don't want to. And so I guess I'll have to sever faith from works and uh, yes, have faith in him, though I don't want to call it that, but I will not allow my behavior to live up to my beliefs. That's, that's an interesting power. And it's power that Nephi had, it's power that Stephen had, it's power that we all need to develop. Whether or not people will agree with us, they need to know that the power of God is in us. And that's on us to live a certain way. Now, verse 11 and 12 what do they do then to try to push back against this man they can't disbelieve in? Well, they suborned men. And to suborn means to bribe or to induce someone to do something illegal. How do we get people to go against them? Just like Annas and Caiaphas, remember this, when they're trying to find false witnesses to testify against Jesus, that's what these people are doing as well. And so they suborned men, which said... Ah, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, against God. And those are two untouchable subjects for the Jews. You don't mess with Moses. He's the lawgiver. And if the lawgiver is sacrosanct, then imagine the source of that law himself. You don't go against God. And yet, that's, those are the accusations they're leveling against Stephen. And as a result, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Here they are trying to turn public opinion against the truth by claiming certain oh, sacred cows, if we can call them that, things that you're not allowed to disagree with in our culture. Nobody takes on Moses or God. Now here's the irony. Stephen wasn't trying to take on Moses. He certainly wasn't trying to take down God. He was trying to serve him with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. Again, it was a matter of interpretation. What do you mean by Moses? Because 
Just like Jesus, we're not destroying his law. We're fulfilling it. We're adding spirit to letter and trying to live it all. When Jesus raised the bar, we're trying to clear it. And by clearing the higher bar, we've cleared the lower one. We're not against Moses. And against God? No, we're not against God at all. In fact, we are fully for his only begotten son. But again, do you see what the leaders are doing? Trying to pit popular opinion against these servants of God. Probably by using a particular interpretation of the law. A particular view of God. But then kind of laying claim to the whole thing. We are for God and you're against him. Even though we're just disagreeing about what God's all about. We're for the law. You're against the law. When, what, have you trademarked the law of Moses? It's now law, TM, registered trademark. You see, the interesting thing about our day, same thing happens. Those in positions of influence, for them, it was these freedmen and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and Cilicians and so on. For us, is it social media influencers? Is it Hollywood? Is it mass media? Whatever it might be, are they accusing believers of being against certain things that are considered untouchable by modern culture? And are they laying claim to complete ownership of that idea? Even though we believe in it too, but there's some nuance here. It's sad. In rhetorical studies, there's a term called an ideograph. And an ideograph is a, a term that's really vaguely defined, but it has so much cultural capital that you can't say anything against it. And if one side of an argument can lay claim to that word and kind of trademark it, then they're going to win the argument because the word does most of the heavy lifting. It almost excuses that party from having to make an argument at all. Think about the abortion debates and there's pro-life versus pro-choice and life and choice are ideographs. Who's going to say anything against life, but who's going to say anything against choice? And if either party can lay claim to them and say, oh, our side owns life and you're completely against it. Whereas the other side is saying, well, choice is on our side and you don't allow anyone to make any. Both of those positions are eliminating nuance. Both of those positions are denying the other party of having any kind of leg to stand on. It's a war of words. It's a tumult of opinions. It's a, a fight over ideographic identification. Which ideograph can we lay claim to? If we could stop and really think and discuss and get past language and understand where both parties are coming from, perhaps we'll heal some divides. We see the same thing over fights over LGBT issues because the word, the word love is the ultimate ideograph in our day. It changes over time as culture changes, but love can't lose. And so if we can, if, if certain people will say to Latter-day Saints, you have no love, you're homophobic. Well, I mean, those are strong, that's strong language. It's kind of inciting rhetoric. 
Just like they're saying, you're against God. You're against the law. No, 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 we're not. Oh, you're homophobic. We are not homophobic. Please ask my LGBT friends. And I pray that they will be able to give you all the evidence you need that I love my friends in the LGBTQ plus community. It's my love, in fact, that makes me want to reach out with as much love as I can to help them live the life that God has asked all of us to live. The kind of life that will tie us to Him eternally. I hope this is making sense. We live in an interesting day, rhetorically. And for us to take a, a lesson from Acts chapter 6 and be a little bit more cautious when someone accuses someone else of being against the law and against God, or against choice, or against love, when that's not what we're saying. Let's get past words that we are not defining very clearly. Let's, let's understand what one another is talking about, where we're coming from, what we're trying to accomplish. It takes more work, it takes more time, it takes more effort. It's worth it, because we'll understand one another better. But that's not enough for these people. They're not interested in understanding. They're focused on, on stopping the spread of Christianity. So verse 13 and 14, they set up false witnesses, just like Annas and Caiaphas had, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words. And again, well, blasphemy is in the eye of the beholder. But this guy just won't shut up. He won't stop. Now, that part was true. Okay? He was filled. This language was, was flowing out of him. But to call it blasphemy? No. Again, that's an, that's an ideographic word. Some scholars, by the way, don't just call them ideographs. They call them God words. And the opposite would be devil words. And the God word here is law. The God word here is God, which means the devil word is blasphemy. And if I can just throw that out there and shock and awe people into an emotional reaction against it, oh, then, oh, blasphemy, oh, here I am tearing my, my, my garments and laying down in sackcloth and ashes, and I can't believe that this Stephen would do such a thing. Oh, calm down, okay? But no, he's speaking blasphemous words against, how's this for another sacred cow, this holy place the temple, that is, and the law. There's that ideograph again. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So now they're pitting the Christians against the temple, even though Christ claimed that house as his own and did his best to cleanse it. And they're pitting Christians against the law. And yet notice what they called it there. They're trying to change our customs. Remember that conversation Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees over tradition versus commandment? And is this cultural or is this commitment? Cultural Christianity is a far cry from covenant Christianity. And the law of Moses is one thing. Your customs, your traditions. Oh yeah, we might not see eye to eye on that. And so be it. And that's the attitude that Stephen takes. So be it. We're going to have to agree to disagree. We don't have to get disagreeable about it. In verse 15, all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, probably trying to detect some fear in his eyes. Well, they didn't see any. 
Instead, they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Here is a transfiguration of sorts. Oh, no mere mortal standing before them, but someone almost angelic, someone filled with a wisdom and spirit that we cannot deny, even if we refuse to agree with it. This is light shining in darkness, but it's also the darkness comprehending it not. And that's what we see in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a long chapter. It's a hard chapter, well, hard emotionally, because of the way it ends. Spoiler alert, Stephen doesn't survive chapter 7. This is the chapter that describes his martyrdom. So it's hard emotionally, but it's also hard intellectually, because it's one long lesson, and it's a history lesson. Stephen, speaking to Jews, who are desperate to hold on to their identity and maintain what we might call brand purity. Like, quit calling yourselves Jews. We're going to have to come up with a new name for you. Eventually they do. But in the meantime, you're not Jewish. You believe in some Messiah that we have rejected. We've had crucified and killed. So quit. Quit assuming. Quit describing yourselves as one of us. You have to come up with your own history. Well, Stephen's like, I know you know your history and love your history. I share in that history. Let me give you eyes to see what that history really was all about and what it's preparing you for. Okay, that's the power of history. In the hands of, of someone who sees and understands its fulfillment. Chapter 7 is incredible. So, verse 1, Then said the high priest, Are these things so Okay, Stephen, let's push you on this. Are you going to be able to defend your teachings regarding Moses and the law and the temple? Or have you truly been blaspheming against these sacred cows? Now, verse 2 through 53 is Stephen's response. It's the last words we'll ever hear from him because they'll end with his condemnation and execution. But again, to see in this history lesson, he will weave Moses and the law and the temple together in this incredible historical survey of the house of Israel, all of which finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This really is amazing. Uh, in some ways, the Book of Mormon equivalent oh, could be Abinadi and the priests of Noah, where they come up with this question that they feel is going to trap Abinadi against Isaiah. And he's like, ooh, good question. I promise I'll answer it. But then goes on this amazing tangent to teach all these principles about the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's genius. Well, Stephen's a genius too. So to people who know their history and are jealous of it, well, let's walk you through it. And since the three parts of the accusation against me are Moses, law, and temple, I'll make sure I focus on those things in my defense. Uh, I mean, Stephen is being his own defense attorney here, his own advocate. And he's going to bring up those three parts in his history lesson, but he's going to do it in such a way that, that they are coming to his defense since he has never... He's never come on offense against those things. The other big thing to focus on is how does he tie this all into Jesus? Because that's what he's trying to do. 
We saw last week Peter's repeated sermons about, I'm a witness of the resurrection, so let me cry repentance and let you know what you've done against the Prince of Life, but that he rose back to life and lives again. Stephen's first discussion and last discussion, sadly, is different. But using the pages of history, you want to talk about law? Jesus is the law and the lawgiver. You want to talk about Moses? Jesus is Moses 2.0, the one that Moses was preparing us for and pointing us towards. And temple? Jesus loved the temple, but more importantly, he is a temple of the Spirit of God. And though it was destroyed, on the third day it was rebuilt. So in terms of these false witnesses, uh, their witness isn't entirely false. It's just confusing the way they described it. We need to infuse it with some symbolism, some understanding. I need to be able to explain myself. So prepare for the explanation. Verse 2, he said, men, brethren, and fathers. And I love those titles. He sees them as family in the household of faith, not as enemies. My brethren, in fact, my fathers, hearken and let's begin our history lesson. The God of glory appeared unto our father, Abraham, our father. I'm on your side. I'm a Jew just like you are. Okay. So our father, Abraham, received a visitation of the God of glory. And where was he when this all happened? When he was in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, we would say, before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him, God said to him, that is, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. And how did Abraham respond? Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. Now you picture the, the Jewish leaders there rolling their eyes like, yeah, da, da, da. I know all the history. What is this all about? Well, as far as Stephen's concerned, what's he trying to get across? The Abrahamic covenant which lies behind this house of Israel and our responsibilities to the world, it all started with a move. Hmm. A move, a change away from what he was used to. A move away from his ancestral homeland and even from his kindred. But he was willing to make that move. He saw that God was calling him into something different. You converts know exactly what this feels like. But this is the faith of my fathers. Well, as Elder Uchtdorf once taught powerfully at conference, it's one thing to hold to the faith of your fathers. His fathers were Lutheran, for example, his ancestors in Germany. But what about the faith of your father, singular, capital F? What about the God of glory? Where does he want you to be? And if it requires a move, a change, then make the change. That's, that's the story behind us. God is asking us to do it all over again. Make a change from what you thought was where you needed to be. God has a greater promised land awaiting. Will you move? He then says in verse 5 through 7, And he gave him, Abraham, None inheritance in it, 
No, not so much as to set his foot on, which is ironic. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to get all this land? Well, yeah, but no, not quite yet. He says, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child, which again is ironic. I'm, you're going to have this piece of land for perpetuity. Your descendants will fight over it till kingdom come. But that kingdom will come. Just hold out hope. In fact, I'll give it to your posterity, and I'm promising you that even before you have a posterity of one. You still have no children. Well, wait for it. Prepare for it. Believe in it. He said that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil 400 years. And that describes their time in Egypt, right? And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. So in three verses, he has just flown through history, going from Abraham all the way to Moses. Abraham was given promises, but didn't live to see them all fulfilled. Uh, that suggests patience on God's part. That even when he says something, it might not come in the exact way you expected. It might not come in the time that you expected, but hold out hope. In fact, it might, oh, you might go in the, it might feel like you're going in the wrong direction before you go in the right direction. Things might get worse before they get better, is what he's trying to say. And that was the case with the people of Israel. That Abraham had it rough for most of his life, waiting for a fulfillment of promises. Even when they finally came, Isaac, that's it. That's not seed like the stars or the sands. Uh, we'll get there. Oh, okay, so we're just going to multiply and be here on this land. Well, I didn't say it exactly that way either. There will be four centuries worth of tribulation and trial. Under some foreign rule that you will chafe under. You see what? Can, can you picture already what Stephen is trying to say? It's not ancient history he's describing. It's current affairs. Because switch out Egypt for Rome, and they're still suffering. The house of Israel is still in bondage all over again. And yet God is aware. He is intent on keeping his promises. So if we can trust what God said to Abraham and get through the Egyptian captivity, then there will be a Moses that comes to set the people free. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Are you getting this? Yes, we're under Roman occupation. And this is, this is not what we had expected for ourselves with our messianic hopes based in prophetic promise. And yet maybe God is keeping his promises after all. Maybe he's doing it in a way we hadn't envisioned. We're starting to see ahead to what... I mean, when, when Stephen finally springs the trap, Jesus appears on all sides. And we're seeing hints of him already. But I'm getting ahead of myself, Stephen would say. <laughs> Let's get back to Abraham, okay? So we even, I know we, we jumped ahead to Moses really quick, but rewind the clock, go back to Abraham, and let's begin again. Verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. So far, so good. 
I'm not speaking against the law. I'm trying to keep it down to every jot and tittle. I'm honoring the covenant of circumcision. I'm walking us down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. What's the next step? With these 12 patriarchs, Jacob's 12 sons, the patriarchs, he says, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now, if Abraham was a major stopping point, or I should say starting point in the history of the house of Israel, and Jesus had a lot in common with Abraham. Well, let's stop for a moment here at Joseph. And if there's anybody that had a lot in common with Jesus, it's him. Think about how Joseph was described by Stephen here. Others, his brothers, were moved with envy. Does that describe how you've felt toward Jesus of Nazareth? You priests, recognizing that there was a higher priest among you? You children of the, the law, face to face with the Son of God himself? Hmm. Moved with envy. And what did they do? They got rid of him as best they could. They sold him into the hands of a foreigner. Isn't that what you did? In trying to push him in Pilate's direction? And then wash your hands of it all, even as Pilate was washing his? No, you, you tried to get rid of him along those lines, and yet it didn't work. Because God was with him. In fact, through him, God was with us all. He was Emmanuel, after all. And what happened? God delivered Jesus. I mean, Joseph. That's who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It's a history lesson. Uh, he delivered him. He, Joseph found favor and wisdom. Remember that great verse in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus' childhood? That he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That describes Joseph's growing up years perfectly as well. Growing in all those areas under Potiphar's supervision and then under you know, the jailer's supervision and then under Pharaoh's supervision. He rose to power just like Jesus did. He found favor. He was made a governor over all things. And Jesus is so much more than even that. Will you have the eyes to see? Will you recognize a new Joseph among us? Or are you still going to be moved by envy and sell him off to Potiphar all over again? Well, verse 11, Now there came a dearth, or a famine, over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, or Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. There was a famine in the land. Oh, just like Amos prophesied. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a desire for the things of God. His word People will be parched to receive the kind of preaching that they'll need. Hmm. Okay, and where did Jacob and his family go to find it? Oh, they went to Joseph, the brother they'd envied, the brother they'd sold. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, are you getting this? It was a period of great affliction to the Israelites because of Egypt. 
Ah, great affliction now because of Rome. The question will be, where will you go to find the living bread and the living water? Where will you go to find deliverance from your captors? Will you go to Joseph or will you reject him? Verse 13 through 15. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. Well, we're just teaching this history lesson. That's all I'm doing. And yet, do you have eyes to see? Joseph's brothers did. They finally recognized Joseph for who he was. And then Egypt, Pharaoh, came to recognize his family for who they were. Do you have eyes to see Jesus as Joseph 2.0? The brother who was sold and yet who forgave those around him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The brother who fed the famished. Oh, Jesus did more than multiply loaves and fishes. He provided himself. His flesh was food. His blood was drink. And through him we can all be delivered. Will, do you recognize who's walked among you? And will the larger world come to recognize the followers of Christ for who they really are? When Pharaoh saw the whole family and wanted them to be a part of his kingdom. Will the world do that? Then verse 16. Keep going on the history lesson. They were carried over into Sychem. This is now in Sychar, we would say, from our Old Testament study, Samaria. And laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Now this is more, this history is not as well known as what we've been studying. But go back to our Old Testament study last year and we covered it all. Now, this is when Abraham wants to buy uh, some property so he can bury his beloved Sarah. That, be that becomes the tomb of the patriarchs as it's passed down. And Isaac will be buried there and Jacob will be buried there as his bones are brought back from Egypt. The history lesson continues. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. Oh, Stephen really knows his Old Testament. We've now passed from Genesis to Exodus. A new Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't know who he was or who, these, who this family of Hebrews is, and so treats them poorly. And yet, the time of the promise is drawing nigh. It may not feel that way, as here we are, crushed under Roman rule. But despite the fact that Caesar knows not Christ, just like Pharaoh knew not Joseph, the promises have drawn nigh. The promises are being fulfilled all around us, if you'll open your eyes to see. In verse 19, the same dealt subtly with our kindred. Those old Egyptians did, just like the Romans are doing with us. And evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, 
and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Again, this is just like the Jews suffering under Roman occupation. And yet Jesus comes, exceeding fair. He comes having descended from his father's house. Moses left the presence of his parents, floated down the Nile, and took on an identity that wasn't fully his. But he did so, so he could get to a point where he could lift all those around him. This is the, the condescension of Christ. A little baby Moses floating down the Nile. And this well-favored, beautiful son of God coming down to Egypt itself. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How will we respond to him? Interesting that even Pharaoh's daughter recognized this is a boy worth saving. Even Pilate attempted that himself. Herod could see nothing wrong with him. Pilate could find no guilt in that innocent man. And yet his own people rejected him. And that's the next stage of the history lesson. Verse 22 through 24, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Sound like Jesus? <laughs> mighty? Oh, far mightier than Moses ever could be. Far more learned in the wisdom of every age. And when he, Moses, was full 40 years old, for Jesus it was 30, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Which again finds some interesting parallels. Jesus, it coming into his heart to visit his brethren, it's time to begin my mortal ministry, to begin associating with the people, coming to, coming to know their circumstances in a much more personal way so that I can lift them out of those circumstances and point them to a, a far higher way. Again, will the people recognize it? When in Moses's case, one of the, th one of the hinge points in Moses's life was seeing his own people suffer. And again, think of the condescension of Christ as he took upon himself flesh so that according to the flesh, he would know how to succor his people. He saw us suffer. And as a result, he rushed to our defense. He wanted to avenge us against our adversaries. In fact, against the capital A adversary himself. That's what the atonement was for. You see in this a sense of Moses plundering the riches of Egypt, and then using that, all that he learned, to bless his people. It's exactly what Jesus does too. And then verse 25, which is so key in understanding Moses, but even more important in understanding Jesus. For he supposed his brethren would have understood. I just thought they'd get it. Moses supposed that his own brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. 
but they understood not. And that is tragic. Again, if Stephen is, quote-unquote, talking about Moses, but really, speaking of the Savior, then verse 25 is one of the most haunting verses in his whole history lesson. Jesus came and supposed we would have understood. He came among his own people, was moved by compassion to free us from our self-inflicted wounds. And yet we wounded him. We didn't get it. We didn't understand why he'd come and who he was and who he was coming to help. And what a tragedy that we didn't live up to divine expectations. That we didn't know that Christ had come for us. So verse 26, back to Moses. The next day he showed himself unto them as they strove. And would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? And Jesus did that constantly throughout his ministry. He showed himself to them. He stood in the middle of conflict and contention and tried to set people at one. Tried to reduce the friction between Jews and Samaritans, for example. Oh, brought a zealot and a publican together in his own Quorum of the Twelve. He honored Caesar in a way, but honored God in an even higher way. He tried to get us to be okay with our circumstance and realize that it was what was happening within us, not outside us, that mattered. He calmed stormy seas. He cast out demons. He did all things for our good. And we didn't receive him. We didn't recognize him. In Moses' case, he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Oh, wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Again, this is straight out of the book of Exodus. And Stephen is walking them through it step by step. But think about people's reaction to Jesus when he came. All he was trying to do was set us together again as brethren. And how did we respond? Oh, what, you going to kill me too? Like you killed the Egyptian? You're going to condemn me like you seem to be condemning everyone? No, I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save. Interesting the words that they were afraid of, the titles that they feared for Moses. You're trying to be our ruler and our judge. Who who set you up on this pedestal? In Jesus' case, we don't want you to be our ruler. Because you'll take away our agency. You'll force us to do things your way. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus came to honor our agency and to save us from its misuse. And our judge? And judge there with the fear of execution. That this is going to be a judge with no mercy. That it's all justice and no mercy. And he's going to find us guilty and he's going to condemn us. And yet again, John 3, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And his son didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He is our ruler, but he rules in righteousness, honors our agency. He is our judge, 
But more than that, he's our advocate with the Father. And he's trying to free us from a condemnation we actually deserve. He steps in our place and takes that condemnation himself. But then 29, then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. This is where he's there with Jethro, off in the Sinai Peninsula. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him. This is illumination that comes when we turn aside to see. Remember that phrase we dwelt on last year? I love that one. When Moses recognized there's something to this. What on earth is going What's happening here? A, burn, a bush that's burning and yet it's not being consumed? Uh, sheep, you're on your own. Don't get lost. I'm going to turn aside to see. To try to understand what's happening. And when God saw that he turned aside to see. Then and only then did he actually speak. Well, you Jewish leaders, will you take the time to recognize a burning bush? Because Jesus was a burning and brilliant light that never burned out, despite your attempts at extinguishing him on the cross. No, that, that cross was a tree now ablaze with the glory of God. And there's no putting that out. Turn aside. Forget what you're doing. Be willing to move like Abraham, to turn like Moses, and see truth as it stands before you. In verse 32, the Lord speaking to Moses through the burning bush said this, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and durst not behold then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, which speaks of a general awareness. But then it gets a lot more specific. Not just I have seen, but I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. How's that for specific concern for his, that possessive pronoun, my people? I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. God was aware of his people suffering under Egyptian rule. He is aware of us suffering under Roman rule. And so he sent to Moses. He sent to Jesus. Because God sees and hears and is. He is. I am. And I am came among us. He didn't just send Moses. He came himself. Remember the parable of the wicked husbandman that rejected every servant and then rejected the son? Have we rejected prophets? And now have we rejected the son of God who came among us? Have we cast Moses out when Moses is coming in to help us out of Egyptian bondage? Again, Stephen is a genius. And the story he is telling through this history lesson, I can picture the Jews like, what are you doing? Get on with it. Defend yourself. We know the history lesson. And Stephen, oh, do you? 
Unfortunately, I think you have confined it to the past. You're living it. And you're not on the side of the story that you think. But back to Moses. Verse 35. This Moses, we could say, this Jesus, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? Again, those are their concerns. Same concerns, by the way, that Laman and Lemuel had against Nephi, who, who put you in charge. Well, the same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. You notice the, the slight, subtle change. You expected a ruler and a judge. What you got was a ruler and a deliverer. Uh, this ruler is not your executioner. This ruler is one who sets you free, grants you pardon, mercy more than justice. He came to help, not to hurt. Well, Moses brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And Jesus had done all that <laughs> condensed time in a mortal ministry of three years. But signs and wonders, oh, you better believe it. Trying to bring them out of their sin, out of their ignorance, out of their cluelessness, out of their hopelessness. Would you prefer a promised land? I have one for you. Well, verse 37, this is that Moses. The same one who did all of those things historically also said this prophetically. He said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. That verse gets quoted all the time. Jesus quotes it himself. Jesus quotes it to the Jews. He quotes it again to the Nephites. Oh, this is Moses 2.0. This is a return of the lawgiver and the deliverer. Now, notice how... Stephen says it next. This is he, the same Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, powerful phrases there. Let's focus on two of them. He refers to the church in the wilderness. Mm, are we starting to see him pivot from ancient prophecy or ancient history to, to modern events. A church? Did Moses ever refer to it as a church? Ecclesia is the Greek word where we get ecclesiology, uh, the study of churches, and this congregation. Wasn't it just the house of Israel? Well, yeah, but that's God's church. And here in New Testament time, the New Testament version of that will be the Church of Jesus Christ of ancient-day saints. Moses had a church in the wilderness, and a church complete with oracles. Now, an oracle, you know, if you're kind of Greek uh, culture, there's the Oracle of Delphi. The, the oracle is the person that acts as some kind of intermediary between God and humanity. The the oracle is a medium, is a voice. And though the voice is theirs, the words belong to God. So Moses was a, an oracle. By the way, oracle can also mean not just the person who delivers the message, but the message itself. So the oracle is giving you an oracle, you could say. 
Now, the Greek word, by the way, and this is fascinating, the Greek word here translated as oracle comes from the root word logos. And logos means the word. But it means the word like the concluding argument, the word and will, the, the philosophy, the insight, the idea, the, the truth. It's logos is the word that John uses in John chapter 1 verse 1 when he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the logos. God gave his word, and Jesus came as its embodiment. Jesus was the oracle of God. And he's continuing to give oracles to his church in the wilderness as we speak. In fact, I am an oracle giving you an oracle. It's what Peter has been doing the last five chapters and what John was doing there on the, the steps of the temple. God's mission is not fulfilled. We're still stuck in Egypt, my friends. Here we're still under Roman rule. So trust in the oracles of God. Trust in the Logos, the Word that was made flesh, who still speaks to us through chosen servants of the living God. We are not confining revelation to a bygone age. We're not giving God a voice only in the past tense. No, he's a living oracle. In fact, the words he used here, he's a lively one. And I love that. Lively suggests more than just alive. And it's not just the healed layman that's leaping around. Peter and John are, are leaping as well. Here am I, Stephen, bounding toward you with the oracle of a living God. I love what he says in those verses. Okay, We're starting to see him become a little more clear where he's going with this seemingly irrelevant history lesson. Now, verse 39 is another powerful one that condemns the past and condemns the present. Verse 39, To whom our fathers would not obey. They still wouldn't obey Moses. They wouldn't obey that lively oracle. This church in the wilderness was disobedient to him. So they thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Can you picture him if he were being crystal clear and say, you know what, you guys prefer life under Roman rule. You really do. Sure seems like it. You're totally content to let Pilate remain in charge. Remember, you even threatened him. If you are... If you don't condemn Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. What, what you guys are friends of Caesar? You, you prefer your Egyptian onions and leeks and cucumbers like we saw last year? Man, you like the Roman roads and the Pax Romana? Well, it's coming at your expense. But no, they prefer that way. You turn back to Egypt. And in the history lesson, they said unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. Oh, for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. In other words, we don't know what happened to that guy. He went up on the mount, and we've never seen him yet since. So forget him. Make us a, make us a god. And sadly, Aaron was willing to oblige them. 
They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Are you doing the same? Do you know what happened with Moses when he went up the mountain? He came back transfigured. Just like Stephen had been at the end of chapter 6. Just like Jesus post-crucifixion. You have no idea what happened with Christ, do you? When he ascended and you thought you were now free to go back to gods of your own creation, the works of your own hands. No, oh, no. Moses is coming back. And Jesus already has. So verse 42, Then God turned. Now, he turned because his people wouldn't turn to him. Remember, turn is the repentance word. And the people refused. But God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven. I mean, after all, they wouldn't worship him. And yes, he's our ruler, but he honors our agency. So you want to worship false gods? Be my guest. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now, when Stephen, man, Stephen's a genius. He knows his stuff. When he said, as the, it is written in the book of the prophets, he's quoting Amos there. And what he just talked about with Moloch and Ramphan and the tabernacle and going off to Babylon, those are things that Amos prophesied in chapter 5. So, Stephen is quoting one of these minor prophets. In fact, when he says, as it is written in the book of the prophets, book singular, prophets plural, most of the Jews in that time period took the 12 minor prophets, don't call them that to their face, and assembled them together into a single book called the book of the prophets. And so it wasn't just that Amos said it, yes he did, but in that larger collection of books, this is this prophecy. And you're fulfilling it, Stephen says. Now lest we miss his point, he's made a, a bit of a transition here. By quoting that particular passage, there's all kinds of passages he could have quoted about abandoning God uh, and, and following your own way. But the fact he mentions Moloch so he can bring up the tabernacle of Moloch, some kind of shrine set up to this false god. Well, now we're talking tabernacles. Hmm. Because isn't that one of the things you accused me? You said I was against Moses and the law. Oh no, I've just re referred to Israelite history to establish my allegiance to Moses and the law. But now, since you mentioned the temple also, can we start talking about tabernacles? So I'll mention the tabernacle of Moloch, but then I'll quickly shift to the one I really want to talk about, verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. So there's false tabernacles as well as true ones. Tabernacle to a false god, now tabernacle to the true one. The tabernacle of, wit of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Now, that was a long passage. And did you catch the word Jesus in the middle? 
Now, you got to stop there because, wait, 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 wait. Did you just, like, break out of character? Did you just spill the beans and give the obvious clue that this is who you've been talking about all along? Well, yes and no. Because what's amazing, remember we talked about this before? Joshua, or Yeshua, is Jesus' name. We're talking... In fact, check this out. In most other translations of this, not the King James, it doesn't say Jesus. It says Joshua, because that's literally who Stephen is referring to. We're still doing the history lesson. And like we went from Abraham to Moses, now we got to get from Moses to Solomon. And the transition point to do that is going to be the temple. It's going to be the tabernacle. So he mentions the tabernacle of Moloch to make the shift into the tabernacle of Moses. And then from Tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, it goes from Moses to Joshua. Ah, that's how we enter the promised land. Okay, the, he brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles or into the Canaanites, the non-Israelites, the nations is what you'd say in Hebrew. The history lesson is this. Moses made a tabernacle and Joshua brought it in to the promised land. But the promised land was possessed by foreigners at the time. It might as well be called Gentile territory. But stay there. Joshua is going to help conquer this promised land, uh, make it a little more hospitable for the people of God. And then fast forward generations, and David comes along, who wants to turn tabernacle into temple, wants to build God a permanent house. He can't because he's a man of war, but his son, Solomon, is a man of peace and is therefore given the permission to build the house of peace itself, the house of God. You, you following me? Uh, you Jewish libertines, you freedmen? You following me, Jews from across the diaspora? Do you get what I'm trying to explain here? Where it's just, just history lesson. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But what he's doing here is incredible. Again, Stephen, I take my hat off to you. Dropping a hint like, Joshua's role. We usually don't think of Joshua much when it comes to the tabernacle, but he did bring the tabernacle across the Jordan River. The water parted, right? Just like Moses 2.0. Well, we're seeing more than one here. Joshua finally helped them enter. You see Jesus as a Moses, a lawgiver, a deliverer. You also see Jesus as a Joshua, helping them into the promised land, conquering the enemies all around them, turning Gentile territory into promised land. But you also see Jesus as David. He is the son of David, after all. Not a mere king, but the king of kings himself. And you see Jesus as a Solomon, a man of incredible wisdom, a prince of peace. You see Jesus in all of these figures as we've shifted from tabernacle, thank you Moses and Joshua, to temple, thank you David and Solomon. Jesus is running throughout it all. He's all four characters. In fact, he's the tabernacle himself and the temple himself, his own body. <laughs> Amazing here. Now, verse 48 after having played with names there and going from Joshua historically to Jesus symbolically, 
Here's the next step. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? In other words, this was never about a physical tabernacle or temple. It was always about a more spiritual reality reflecting the presence of God. That's why Jesus is more than a Joshua, though they had the same name. That's why Jesus is more than a Moses, though Moses said another prophet would come just like him. This is why Jesus is more than a David, though he is his son, and more than a Solomon, though they both shared that, that peaceful power. Jesus is tabernacle and temple because it was never intended to be made with hands alone. Jesus is the spiritual reality of the presence of God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. We had eyes to see, did you? So yeah, you've torn down the temple. So be it. It's been raised. It was raised on the third day. So, verse 51, since this whole history lesson has been about Jesus all along, now Stephen's ready to spring the trap. Let's make this crystal clear, shall we? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Whoa, that, that would have been jolting. Whoa, what, were you, what are you talking about? This, this is the, the fisherman that is just letting the, the, the lure dangle in the water. Oh, you're safe. Everything's fine. And as soon as the fish gets close enough to satisfy his curiosity, I'll pull that line back. And that's what, that's what Stephen is doing here. This was no history lesson alone. You're the ones I'm talking about. You're the brothers who rejected Joseph. You're the people who didn't perceive who Moses had come to help. You're the enemies all the way through. You're the stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart your refusal to feel, and in ears, your refusal to hear. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. And here I am, filled with that Spirit. Are you going to resist me too? Ah, oh, probably. Because as your fathers did, so do ye. In fact, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Go ahead. They all seem to suffer at the hands of non-believers. And that's what Jesus went through. It's what Peter and John have just gone through. It's probably what I'm about to go through. They have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So we're not the ones blaspheming the law here. You are. By rejecting its source, its purpose, its fulfillment. We're not the ones blaspheming the temple. Again, you are. By rejecting, it's worse than rejecting the house. You've rejected the householder. Everything you've accused us of doing, you are the guilty party. Because you're uncircumcised of heart and ears. You refuse to let the Spirit enter. This is exactly what Isaiah had said. They'll have eyes, but they won't see. They'll have ears, but they won't hear. They'll have hearts, but they won't understand. Because they don't want to be converted. They don't want to be healed. You'd prefer to stay in the circumstance you find yourself in. Now, we're going to see their reaction now that the, the trap has been sprung. It's not a good one. 
but think again what Stephen has been doing. The history lesson is over. He's done. In some ways, he's the New, equiv- the New Testament equivalent of the prophet Nathan. When he went to David post Bathsheba and told him a story that he would have resonated with fully. A story about a shepherd and one little ewe lamb. The story he told is one that David would have felt so much compassion for. He would have resonated completely with this shepherd. And when Nathan springs the trap and asks, what would you do to this man who stole the shepherd's lamb? Oh, kill him. And then remember Nathan's words, thou art the man. In this story, you're not the good shepherd. You're the enemy who steals his lamb. And you've just passed judgment upon yourself. Well, here Stephen is saying to his hearers, Thou art the men. And I'm taking something you're passionate about, not shepherding, but rather your own history and identity. The one you think I'm against. And no, it seems that you're against it. Because you're playing the part of the bad guy, not the good guy now that it's your turn on the stage. Well, how will they react now that they know what he's been saying? That Jesus is Abraham, and Jesus is Joseph, and Jesus is Moses, and Jesus is Joshua, and Jesus is David, and Jesus is Solomon, and Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he came, and you rejected him, He came and you crucified him, and yet he came again. He has risen. Peter cuts straight to the chase without those last few passages. You're the guilty ones. And you can pick, and remember, when their hearts were soft and they were pricked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And they convert and are changed, healed, forgiven. Or hearts hard, hearts cut, angry ready to kill Peter and John, or in this case, ready to kill Stephen? Well, look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Oh no, that's indicative of their hardness. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. To gnash? They want to chew him up and spit him out. They're burying their teeth in rage. Wild animal-like ready to devour him. And so they do. And yet Stephen, unfazed by it all, unafraid, he was filled, after all. No room for fear. Verse 55 and 56, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see. The heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we love to see this passage as evidence of the separation between Father and Son. And it's a powerful passage to do exactly that. They are separate beings. Stephen sees them as such. He sees the glory of God, sees Jesus standing on his right hand. This is not some kind of Trinitarian unity. 
No, this is a distinct father and distinct son who are so fully one in purpose that there they are standing side by side and wanting to stand side by side with Stephen. Perhaps even more than the theology of distinction between members of the Godhead is the theology of compassion they feel toward their servants. And eyes on me, or eyes on us, Stephen, lest you see the stones fly in your direction. I love, we, last week we talked about the eyes, the visual angles of Peter and John and the lame man. And how much was being taught by who was looking and then who was looking away. And what do you want to see and see you, see me seeing you and so on. Well, here, what is Stephen doing with his eyes? He's looking up steadfastly, which suggests a fixed gaze that he refused to allow to be distracted. I'm not looking at my persecutors. This is Jesus stooping down and writing in the sand at another moment when stones might be flying any minute. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. And Stephen, not in your face, like, huh? Huh? You want, more? You want a piece of this? No, he called them out and then just left it, wondering if their hearts would be pricked or cut. And now that he knows, it's out of his hands, and he's okay with it. He looks steadfastly into heaven and sees a light so bright that he cannot detect the darkness. Oh, the darkness is around him, but the light is above him, and he looks up and sees the heavens opened. No wonder he can handle what comes next. Verse 57 and 58. Then they cried out with a loud voice. I'm sure they're trying to drown out Stephen's testimony. We don't want anyone to hear that. So no, loud voice. They stopped their ears. There they are, as usual, refusing to hear. Don't want it to penetrate enough to change them. They want to keep their, their ears and hearts uncircumcised. With that, they ran upon him. With one accord. Wow, oh, so tragic to use that phrase here. One accord. Isn't that supposed to belong to the people of Zion? Their one mind, their one heart. Well, now it's the enemies that are equally unified in opposition to truth. So they come rushing all together as if one body and cast him out of the city. Now, that would have been enough. Just expel him. But no, they wanted to make this permanent. So they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Let's get rid of him once and for all. Just like they'd done to Jesus. Just like they'd threatened to do to Peter and John. Just like they'd envisioned doing to Lazarus, we've got to eliminate the evidence that's not in our favor. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And how's that for foreshadowing? This is the first mention of the lead actor in the New Testament second half. But what a powerful first impression. He's an accessory to murder he does, it seems like he's not throwing stones, though we'll see in our second half of this week's lesson his willingness to do so a little later. 
No, instead, he's just the, oh, he's guarding the closet. He's taking their clothing. But there's some symbolism there. They're removing their coverings. Remember in the Old Testament, cover is the word for atone. It's the coat of skins that covers our nakedness. It's the Lord's robes of righteousness that keep us from the, uh, being exposed to the all-seeing eye of God. Well, here they are removing those robes, casting off their covering at the feet of Saul, who's more than willing to help them remove those robes. Now, it's interesting what they're doing here in stoning him. It's just begun. He's, he's still breathing to this point. But this is capital punishment. The, they're ready to condemn him for blasphemy, though he was unguilt, not guilty of it, but to condemn and execute him. Now, remember all the effort that they made just a little while ago in having Jesus crucified? Crucifixion was the Roman form of execution. Stoning was the Jewish form. But the Jews knew it's illegal for us to execute capital punishment. That's why they worked so hard to get Pilate to do it. You have to kill him. We're not allowed to. Well, then how do they get away with the execution of Stephen? I mean, on the one hand, they are trying to go by the book. I mean, we can't accuse him of blaspheming the law and then go against the law ourselves. And the law does require witnesses, for example. And it's the witnesses that will start the process of stoning to execute the person that they've witnessed in error. And sure enough, they, it's the witnesses that lay their clothing at the feet of Saul. So on that side of things, oh, we're trying to go by the book. But that's the Jewish book. What about the Roman book? That says you're not allowed to do this. Well, by now, they've totally chucked the Roman book. And in a way, that makes this, although they're trying to make it legal by, in Jewish eyes, this is illegal in the eyes of the real authority. There have been some scholars, in fact, that refer to the stoning of Stephen as a lynching. And that's a strong word to use. That this is some kind of extra-legal, oh, vigilante justice. That this is mob violence. And it's being acted out on innocent Stephen. But how does he react? Verse 59 and 60. They stoned Stephen. But he was calling upon God. Not pleading with them for mercy. Rather, pleading with God that he might have mercy on them. He called on God and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Which is like what Jesus said to the Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But that's not the only thing that Stephen said in echo of his Lord. He still had enough life left in him to breathe one last breath and utter one last sentence. He kneeled down attitude of worship. He is before the Father and the Son, after all. He cried with a loud voice, just like Jesus had from the cross, and said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Sound a little like 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I am amazed that Jesus could say that on the cross. And I'm amazed that Stephen could say it. As the stones are flying. This is it for him. It's over. And the Lord did receive his spirit. The two that he saw in heaven were now joined by a third. Oh, there's room on the throne for everyone, Jesus will say. But to understand, go back to what, where we've ended John 21. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, oh, when you were little, you dressed yourself and, where, and went where you wanted. The day will come where someone else will dress you, gird you with a cross, and take you where you don't want to go, namely the grave. Follow me, he then said. And what a chilling invitation. For Stephen, Stephen followed Jesus in life and then followed Jesus in death. And though he had words of condemnation for the way they treated the Lord, he did not condemn them for how they treated him. Forgiveness was on his lips. And that's incredible. The ending is so powerful also. He fell asleep. Remember when Jesus said, Oh, we got to go back to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus because he's sleeping. And the apostles took that literally instead of symbolically. And we're like, hey, if he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. Guys, come on. He's dead. But death, from an eternal perspective, is just a catnap. It's just closing the eyes for a few moments and then opening them again, surrounded by glorious light. Stephen fell asleep. But thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, he and everyone who suffers similar kinds of persecution will wake up and wake up in glory. Now, if you paused your study after chapter 7. And I, when I try to break these up into smaller groups, I, I chop it right there too. If you did, then you and I committed the cardinal sin of allowing a chapter heading to break up the flow of a narrative that is meant to flow forward. We see, we've seen that repeatedly. And this is one where stopping after chapter 7, and especially if you go to bed and pass through the veil and start your study the next day in chapter 8 and not remembering what you just... I mean, if you're going to start at the beginning of a chapter, fine. Just go back and remind yourself of how the previous chapter ended. So to do that here, where did we just end? Yes, the martyrdom of Stephen. But who did we meet at the coat rack? Saul. And it's... It's Saul that will carry us beyond the chapter heading. It's Saul that is first introduced at the end of 7, but then is mentioned again at the beginning of 8. And keep an eye out for him. Verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his death. This is not an active participant, but he is an accessory to the act, fully in favor of it, Okay, cheering them on, I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't want you to get blood on your hands. That's why you can stone them from a distance. And I wouldn't, I mean, getting blood on your hands makes you richly impure. You wouldn't want that. Okay, so yes, let's, let's strain out those gnats, shall we? Oh, a nice camel 
that you're chewing on. But let me keep your, not only hands clean, but keep your clothing clean as well. Wouldn't want his blood to come upon your garments, after all. Well, consenting to that, notice the next phrase, at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, in that one verse, we see Saul associated with persecution. We'll see more of that. But this is how he's defined. Our first impression of him is that he's a persecutor. He's an anti-Christian. Though we can't yet call him, or we shouldn't call him, an anti-Christ. He doesn't know much about that. And we'll see that by the time we get to chapter 9. But here, he's consenting to this persecution. He'll get it more and more engaged in it as time goes on. And as a result, do you see what happens? They're all scattered throughout the regions. Judea, Samaria. Wait a minute. Uh, didn't Jesus say you'll start in Jerusalem and then you'll go to Judea and then you'll go to Samaria and from there you'll go to the ends of the earth? That's Acts chapter 1. Hmm. It's already happening, but happening at the hands of one's enemies? Interesting. Is God using the enemies of his movement to move his movement forward at even greater speed? Because by scattering those in Jerusalem, they're starting to spread, and with it, they're spreading the gospel. Amazing how much mileage the Lord can get, even out of our trials. And we'll see more of that in a moment. But also notice the end there. They were all scattered abroad, but then Luke is careful to clarify. Well, well, well when I say all, I don't mean all, except the apostles. The apostles are the exception to the rule. They don't get scattered Peter and John, if we learned anything last week, you get out of prison, not so you can run away from the people who imprisoned you, but so you can go straight back to the temple and pick up right where you left off. That apostolic advantage we referred to. Oh, there's an advantage to having apostles that are filled with the Spirit, thus making them bold and unshaken immovable. Now they're, they're going to be here for good. It reminds me of a story that was told about Elder Howard W. Hunter. His presidency was so short that I fear that we don't remember him as well as he deserves. He was a man of velvet and steel, Elder Holland once called him. And we saw his velvet as president of the church, so gentle, so kind. Oh, preaching about the temple and its importance. But his steel? Oh, there was a backbone there. And one, two, two quick examples of it. One, he was in Jerusalem. He was uh, a key figure in establishing the Jerusalem center. And once it was built, despite incredible opposition from those around, uh, he was there in Jerusalem with Boyd K. Packer of the Quorum of the Twelve, and they were dedicating the building. And President Packer, or Elder Packer, was speaking at the time. And some men came in the back of the room that were part of the Israeli military. I mean, that's going to create a stir. The military is everywhere because Jerusalem's a dangerous place. But to come into the Jerusalem center, a place of worship, and a place of learning, but there in the upper room, the upper auditorium of the Jerusalem center with its unbeatable view of the old city, the building's being dedicated, and the army comes to town. And they pass a note to President Hunter saying there's been a bomb threat. 
you need to evacuate. President or Elder Hunter reads it and looks up at President or Elder Packer, who's on at the stand, probably wondering what, what's going on. And Elder Hunter simply says, They say there's a bomb. Are you afraid? And now, if it were me, I'd be like, Oh, yeah, did you really have to ask that publicly? But Elder Packer's not me. He has the apostolic advantage, and, and he said, no, I'm not afraid. And Elder Hunter said, neither am I. Finish your talk. And so he did. And there was no bomb after all. Similar story, actually. Later in Elder Hunter's life, he's speaking in the Marriott Center at BYU to all of the students, tens of thousands. And he gets... A man bolts across the, the, the court, comes up to the, the podium, holds something that he claims to be a bomb next to President Hunter, and demands that he reads this statement. The FBI, by the way, later had a field day with BYU on this because they said this was the largest hostage situation in U.S. history. Because here's a man threatening to blow up the Marriott Center when it's filled. If this aged apostle won't meet his demands. You picture Elder Hunter like this again. Uh, I've already been through similar things. And he refused. He stood firm, immovable. I'm not going to succumb to the demands of a, ter of a, of a local terrorist. Well, at a certain point, my sister was actually there in the Marriott Center when this happened. I was still in high school, but she was in college and and said, just almost as if by divine cue, the assembled students began singing, We thank thee, O God, for a prophet, knowing full well that a true prophet stood before them. It was so moving to everyone. It even moved this <laughs> would-be terrorist. Kind of caught him off guard. Just enough for a few people to rush the stand and exercise the laying on of hands in a much more literal way than usual. <laughs> and they dragged him off, and then President Hunter kind of dusted himself off and went back to the stand and picked up right where he left off. And in fact, talked a little bit a little bit about adversity, and then chuckled and said, "The life is full of it, as just demonstrated." Wow, what a what a visual aid, what an object lesson. But it went on like nothing had happened. There's power there. There's courage there, and that's the apostles there. Elder Harold B. Lee, by the way, had another experience. Why does this keep happening to apostles? Where he was in the tabernacle and uh, the, bomb, the police got a, a phone call that there was a bomb threat at the tabernacle in the middle of general conference. And so they snuck up through the, the choir seats for the tabernacle choir and came down and handed a note to President Hunter, excuse me, President Lee, and said to him, you got to evacuate the, the tabernacle. I know it's general conference. I know this is really an awkward time, but there, there's been a bomb threat and we got to take this seriously. And yes, Elder Lee took it seriously, but he also took the spirit seriously and sat there and pondered for a moment. And having received the spirit's assurance, he turned back to the member of the bomb squad and said, yeah, there's no bomb here. There's nothing to be worried about. You can go. <laughs> what do you do? Can you picture the, the, the guy goes back, sneaks out back through the, the choir seats and goes out to his other men assembled outside. He says, uh, he said there's no bomb. I, I, I guess we just 
leave. Oh, it's amazing the steel under the velvet. And these apostles in Saul's day cannot be scattered. They will not be moved. To quote Elder Maxwell about this, the winds of tribulation which blow out some men's candles of commitment only fan the fires of faith of these special men. He said those words about the apostles before he ever became one. But Elder Maxwell was made of similar stuff. Incredible. Now, if the persecution is still going forth, though, and God's actually taking advantage of that, then verse 2 and 3, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Those are those who are faithful, who are devout, who are honoring this man who honored the Lord even in his life as well as his death. On the other hand, as for Saul, who we just met, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. He's an equal opportunity persecutor, male and female, all the same to him. He just doesn't want Christianity to spread at Judaism's expense. These Christians were devout and buried Stephen. Saul was devout in another faith and wanted to bury Christianity entirely. It's a powerful word. Making havoc of the church. Well, we now see a fork in the road. And which side will we be on? To what will we be devoted? Because whatever it is we choose will want us all in. Now verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So like I just mentioned, this is scattering as an instrument of the gathering. We see persecution as a way of deepening commitment. We see storm-strength winds oh, blowing the seeds of faith so they can be planted in further pastures. We even saw that in the scattering of Israel in the Old Testament, that by scattering Israel, these lost tribes, not lost to the Father, they will then intermix and intermarry with other groups and other peoples so that when the Lord finally restores Israel and brings them back, ooh, they'll bring everyone else back with them. God gets incredible mileage out of the kinds of things that we complain about. And I hope that we can have greater faith in Him and in His purposes that even if it's oh, short-term tribulation, He is looking to bring about long-term salvation and exaltation for us and so many others. So if you lose your job, maybe it's because the Lord wants you to get a different one. If you have to move, maybe it's because He wants you in a different place. If you're released from a calling you absolutely loved, maybe it's because there's some growth that He wants you to experience outside your comfort zone. And maybe if someone is persecuting you, your reaction to it is meant to bless you both. Again, God gets gathering even out of scattering. He's good like that. Now, first example of that will be in verses 5 through 8. Philip is the one we'll meet, and it's most likely the Philip just mentioned in chapter 6. Philip the Evangelist, as he'll later be called. Probably not Philip the Apostle that we saw in the Gospels. But this Philip, 
went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, remember Jesus had said, we're going to start with Jerusalem and then go to Judea and then on to Samaria. Well, Philip is doing exactly that. He recognizes that there can be good Samaritans too, and he goes to preach. Sure enough, they respond accordingly. With a people with one accord, oh, I'm glad that we claimed that phrase again to it for ourselves, okay? With one accord, this unity, they gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, seeing is firsthand. Hearing is secondhand. So are they trusting God as well as one another? Is this both vertical and horizontal trust, belief, faith? On the other hand, could this be that Philip's words were as miraculous as his deeds? And so they heard miracles as well as saw miracles? Well, here's a few of them. Unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Yeah, you think so? These are the same kinds of miracles that Jesus performed. And now, not even one of the apostles, but just one of these evangelists, one of these deacons? They can do spiritual things too, not just serve tables? Of course. Just give them the opportunity. You'll be amazed at what they'll be able to do. In this case, especially, among the Samaritans. Ugh. Oh, quit shuddering. They're children of God, too. Then verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria. The Greek word for that, bewitched, by the way, means to astonish or to amaze, but such in an intense way. It's like they were flabbergasted, okay? Just shock and awe. This guy is amazing. Simon the sorcerer? Man. But notice what he does. He gives out that himself was some great one. That's <laughs> gone to his head, okay? And maybe the greatest act of, of sorcery on this part was to convince everyone around him, that he was some incredible person. Remember when Gamaliel was talking about these would-be messiahs that ended up being nobodies when they thought they were somebodies? That's the way he put it. Well, Simon thinks he's a somebody too. And the people agree. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Now notice the way they said it. Not just that he had the great power of God, but that this man is the great power of God. Now that's a dangerous thing to do. When you start conflating person with position, or conflating gift, not with its giver, but with its receiver, oh, you're the power of God. No, he isn't. Compare that, compare Simon the Sorcerer to Peter the Apostle. And you remember last week how emphatic he was? Why are you looking at us? Don't look here. Look, look at, the, at Christ. This is not some power that we have independent of the Savior. It's he's the one that healed this lame man. He's the one that's done all these mighty works. Simon the Sorcerer is the exact opposite. Look at me, look at me. I'm some great thing. And the people fall for it. You are the power of God. He doesn't even have it. 
if we, we have to learn, and we'll see Paul do this beautifully later on in the book of Acts. We have to learn to give God the credit. We have to learn to sidestep praise. As Elder, uh, Elder Ubdorf has said, as he learned from someone, uh, a fellow apostle, people will say nice things, don't inhale. <laughs> Peter refused to inhale. Simon is breathing it in, filling the lungs and filling his head with all of that hot air. Now, notice one word, though. It said at the beginning of that passage that Simon was before time that popular. Before time, he used all that sorcery. Maybe he's still living off this reputation, but the fact it's before time makes me wonder, is it not working as well as before? Has he lost a bit of his popularity? His reputation is fading a little bit with time. Have some people got, gotten wise to his uh, bewitchment? They start wondering, is, is he really the power of God? I don't know. I haven't seen any new tricks in a while. Well, keep that in mind for what happens next. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So he's doing his work, and he's incredibly successful at it. And that perks up the ears and attracts the eye of Simon. Because if Philip's becoming so popular here, is that going to come at Simon's expense? Is this a zero-sum a zero game? Well, Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, I want to give Simon the benefit of the doubt that he believed sincerely and was baptized with honest intent, that he was a counterfeiter, but finally came to recognize the real thing, that I was bewitching and you're baptizing, that I was a sorcerer and you're a saint, that that I'm not the power of God, but you have the power of God. And I will bow to it. Pop my bubble, <laughs> bow my knee. I want, I, I wish that that were the case with Simon. It's hard to tell. We're going to see some more obvious problems in a moment, but at, at, to, to this moment, maybe there's some sincerity here. On the other hand, maybe it's an opportunity he sees. These guys have real power. And if I can get in on that action, then maybe it won't, it won't be before time anymore. Maybe it'll be go time right now. And if this guy doesn't seem to, I mean, he's not from around here. He's just kind of coming in. He's been scattered this way and he's planting seeds along the journey. But if he goes back home, ooh, I could pick up where he left off. In fact, my reputation could pick up where it left off. And that sounds good to me. So is that what he's doing? He's trying to get back in the game? Well, watch the aftermath. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. See, the apostles are still in Jerusalem. They can't be moved. But they've heard that others are moving the work forward. Well, they sent unto them Peter and John. And notice the phrasing there. It didn't say... 
Peter and John decided to go. I mean, they're in charge after all, right? They're the movers and shakers from the first five chapters. So yeah, we got to go make sure. Wait, wait, wait. Is, is Philip getting ahead of us? Get careful there. No, it's the apostles as a collective that send Peter and John, even though Peter presides over them. That's really interesting. Again, if it's one accord, if it's coming together in unity, and if the quorum is acting as a collective, then they're making a collective decision and deciding, yeah, Peter, this probably calls for the chief apostle. Uh, let's make sure that everything's going according to plan. So you and John, they seem to be favorite companions lately. You go and figure this thing out. And so they do. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So not only is, are things going well, they are, they're excited to make them go even better. And Philip had come to baptize you. Well, we are now here to confirm you in the faith. Do you sense a distinction, by the way, between baptism and confirmation? They'd already had baptism by water, hadn't yet received baptism by fire and the Holy Ghost. And if there's a distinction between those two ordinances, is there also a distinction between the authority to perform those ordinances? Because this suggests that there is. Philip, the deacon slash evangelist, evidently had authority to baptize, but he left it at that. And when the apostles came, in their fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, when they came and recognized the good that was done by someone with, with less authority, and you baptized, there's an Aaronic ordinance for you. Well, that's acceptable. That's legitimate. It's authorized. But now may we, in our higher Melchizedek authority, lay our hands upon you and grant you the gift of the Holy Ghost. Separate ordinances, separate authorities coming from separate priesthoods, as we would say. Now, verse 18 and 19, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. I mean, this is so far beyond anything I've ever had, anything I've ever done, anything I've ever been. You... You not only have the power of God, you give a member of the Godhead? How is that even humanly possible? My sorceries are starting to look like parlor tricks compared to you. Again, this is where I worry that his uh, earlier actions may not have been completely sincere. Or maybe, maybe we give, keep giving him the benefit of the doubt to this point. And say, I want to be more, more used would I be. I want not only to be baptized, but have the power to baptize others. And not only baptism of water, but baptism in fire as well. Man, if I could do that, what, what, what a useful instrument I could be. I mean, I am popular around here. At least I was. And I can still resurrect some of that reputation. And I could continue to spread the word. I mean, I could be a kind of permanent pastor right here in Samaria. And yet, Simon, you're misunderstanding. During the medieval period, by the way, there was actually a term called simony. 
And simony was the practice of purchasing church offices. That, among many things, were reasons behind the Reformation. Uh, no, that is not. You, you need to be called of God. You don't call yourself and then give out pastoral positions based on the highest bidder. We're not auctioning off priesthood authority. But sadly, in the Middle Ages, they did auction off some offices within the church. So no simony. And yet, and, and you see where you get the name. Here's somebody who wants to purchase power. But what's interesting about that is it suggests a bigger question. How do we acquire priesthood power? Let alone priesthood authority. There's a difference there too. Priesthood authority we receive by the laying on of hands by ones who already have that authority. This is the fifth article of faith. Priesthood power we gain through righteousness, through worthiness, through selflessness. We are filled with power when we are filled with the Holy Ghost. We live in a day that, eh, maybe not guilty of simony, but we do think is religious authority for sale, uh, namely tuition at a divinity school. That's not why I went to divinity school. I had priesthood authority when I was 12, <laughs> as the Lord gave it to a deacon. Is it a matter of education? Is it a matter of charisma? Simon had plenty of that. What, what is the source of power and the source of authority? We need to keep those all straight. In verse 20, Peter's got it straight and wants to make sure Simon straightens out himself. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Well, Peter wasn't giving him the benefit of the doubt because he doubted his motives seemingly all along. No, your money, take it and keep it and you're going to need it because it's perishable just like you are. You really think the gift of God can be purchased? Oh, there, there is a price to be paid, my friend, believe me. But it isn't money. And in fact, even when you pay the price, it's still a gift. That's why I love the way he said that. It's a gift of God, and it cannot be purchased with money. God doesn't owe us his authority just because we've been ordained. And he certainly doesn't owe us his power if we're not living worthy of it. No, it's like the woman who dared and reached out and touched the hem of his garment, and his virtue flowed into her. He felt it, and he recognized her faith as the catalyst for all of it. Will the Lord do the same for us? Will we recognize that it's a gift that God bestows upon true disciples who are willing to use that power and authority not to aggrandize themselves, but to serve God and to bless God's children, to build God's kingdom, not to try to amass a kingdom of their own. So, Peter, laying down the law, saying it like it is, he goes on, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. In other words, you have no share in this ministry, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Was it not right at belief? Was it not right at baptism? Well, it's certainly not right here at demanding or hoping or, or wanting to buy some kind of priesthood ordination. No, your heart is wrong. And the only solution for that is to make it right again. So repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, priesthood authority is a matter of ordination, my friend, but priesthood power is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of repentance. In fact, it's a matter of embracing the ifs and the perhapses of the will of God. I'm amazed that Peter doesn't take anything for granted, not his own power, not his own authority. It's only, but by the grace of God go I. Don't look at me, look at him. It's only his power, his name, not mine. I have a shadow. He's the light of the world. And so when he says, go and repent and go and pray, if, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will forgive you. I'm amazed at how careful Peter is not to presume upon the grace of God. Not to have some kind of sense of entitlement that if I do my part, then Jesus has to do his. And if I repent, then of course he forgives me. The irony is there is truth to that. Jesus has said that himself. But Jesus is the one that has to say it, not us, not Peter. We don't call the shots in our covenant relationship. No, we, are, we humbly enter into the covenant relationship that God extends to us. It's his way, not ours. And so this is true of repentance and forgiveness. It's also true of priesthood blessings and prayers of faith. We have to be willing to say if, like the leper, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I just don't know if you will, and I'm not demanding that you do so. We have to embrace the perhapses not my will, but thine be done. Every priesthood blessing, every prayer of faith is still a leap of faith. It's still recognizing that there is another person with his own agency on the other side of this covenant relationship. And bless you, Peter, for reminding Simon, in fact, reminding us all of that. I will bless you in hopes that perhaps what we so desperately want is what God knows is best for us. I will repent if, if the Savior allows me to. I hope he'll let me change. And I will not take that gift of grace for granted. Peter is everything that Simon in fact, catch his name. He, you understand? This is such an incredible moment when Peter almost meets his former self, the old Simon. Wow, what a wake-up call. I wasn't trying to buy the gift of God, but I was kind of presuming upon certain things that I felt God, that Jesus owed me. Remember that rich young ruler moment? He didn't give up everything, but we did. 
What's in it for us? Mm. I wonder if... No, maybe that's why Peter was so bold. Well, that's just how he was, right? But maybe that's what he was calling out his former self, his old Simon. And I will not go back to Simon, and I won't let you stay, Simon. Thankfully, thankfully that medieval word Simony is named after the sorcerer, not after Peter's weaker self, because Peter overcame it. He came to know the source of real strength. And it wasn't himself. This is an incredible moment, just based on the names alone and f overcoming former selves. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, of meeting someone and realizing you're just like I was. Yikes. So glad I changed. So glad you can too. And then, verse 24, Simon's response. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me. Let none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And that's the last we hear of Simon. Kind of an abrupt ending. I wish we knew the aftermath. Did he repent? Did, I mean, it sounds like here he wants to, though he does kind of hand that back to the apostles and say, you told me to pray. Will you instead? And I worry sometimes, is he overswinging the pendulum? At one point, it's like, I'm the power of God himself. And then it's like, oh, I have no power, zero. I can't, I can't even approach God to ask for his forgiveness. Will, will you pray for me? No, I think you're overswinging the pendulum there, Simon. You don't have that authority, but you do have some responsibility. And I think there is value for us in recognizing the power and position of apostles, for example, but also knowing that there's some things we need to do ourselves, and repentance is first and foremost among them. We need to establish a personal relationship with, with God. We need to pray to Him directly, and not just hope that other people will do our praying for us. Again, where does this lead, Simon? We don't know. Maybe the ball is left in our court since we're Simon here, and what will we do? But from there, verse 25, they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, I mean, we're here in Samaria, we might as well do some teaching and some testifying, and so they do. But after they've done it, they returned to Jerusalem, and they kept doing what they'd been doing. They preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They're not just taking pride in their recent success. No, they're preaching the whole way home. It's not enough to do one good turn daily. We've got to keep up the work. And they do. Now, the rest of this chapter, then, chapter 8, focuses on another missionary moment, and a single one, and it's one of my favorites. It's one that is so dense with meaning that you could pick it apart phrase by phrase and find missionary principles in practically every one. Uh, we'll do as much of that as we can. But this is the story of Philip, uh, he's, we've seen him already out sharing the word, doing great things, baptizing every chance that he has, even from his lesser level of authority. And now he's going to have another missionary moment, because he's not done either, with an Ethiopian eunuch. And I love this story. Remember back in Matthew 19, we talked about eunuchs. Some born, some made, some that decide to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Uh, and back in Isaiah 56, 
we talked about eunuchs also, that despite not fitting the mold, and despite fearing that they have been cut off from the house of Israel, no, God has a place and a name for them, far above anything that they feel that they're being kept back from in this life. God has, has an eye on those that people don't seem to look at. And he has incredible blessings for those that don't fit the mold. So remember that as you meet this incredible eunuch. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. And again, think about missionary principles. Are we open to the promptings of the Spirit? If the angel speaks, do we have ears to hear? In Philip's case, he did. And what did he hear? The angel said, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And if it's desert, it certainly doesn't seem very promising to bear fruit, does it? And yet, oh, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be what you want me to be. Will we go even if the location seems to be oh, not very promising? Will you accept a mission call to a place that isn't as exciting or exotic as some of your friends? Will you go even if it's desert? if the Lord tells you. Well, Philip did. In fact, next phrase, he arose and went. And catch the language. What do the angels say? Arise and go. What did Philip do? He arose and went. Now that's exact obedience, if I ever saw. In fact, it's immediate obedience too. Despite, wait, go there to the desert? It's like, it's like Simon Peter on the boat Fish on that side? What are you talking about? That's crazy. Oh, okay, nevertheless, at thy, at thy word, I will let down the nets. Uh, you didn't have to ask Philip twice. He immediately acted on the impression. He arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, and that's the end of the world as far as the Jews are concerned. Now, this is as far south as most anybody ever gets in Africa. And... Like we said, we went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now we're at the ends of the earth. Or in this case, the ends of the earth have come to you, but they'll go back home. This Ethiopian was an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, why would a queen... Need a eunuch? I thought it was kings that were concerned about the safety of their harems. Well, queens have things to worry about too. And in this case, it's her whole treasury. But perhaps her husband or her father, we don't know enough about this Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. But if perhaps this Ethiopian had been a eunuch for them, and those kings trusted him completely, and Candace does as well. You can, here's my keys, and here's my credit book card, and here's my checkbook, and basically, here's, my, here's the keys to the kingdom. I trust you with it. Ooh, those are the kinds of people that God wants to find. People that he can trust with keys to his kingdom. So think about this man. We, don't, we never get a name, but in some ways, maybe that's good, because he can stand in and stand proxy for any one of the numberless nameless saints who don't get noticed because they don't fit the mold. 
people maybe that we run across in our missionary endeavors and automatically assume, yeah, they probably wouldn't fit very well in the kingdom. I mean, they're, they're so strong in their faith. Great, they can be strong in this one. Oh, but they smoke. Well, they probably don't know what the Word of Wisdom is about. Oh, they drink. Or they've been involved. In... <laughs> Quit deciding for them. Quit judging them. Quit pushing them out of the kingdom of God before they've even had a chance to find a way of entrance. We need to be open to these kinds of things. We need to be more open to eunuchs because this one, once you get to know him, great authority, complete trust, devout man, despite the fact that he knows he'll never fully fit in, or at least assumes it. Well, don't underestimate the God of Isaiah 56. Don't underestimate the Lord of Matthew 19. Don't, any of you who don't fit the mold for whatever reason, don't underestimate the Lord of love and the acceptance of his church because God knows what you're worth and you're worth worlds. So verse 28 this Ethiopian man, who'd been up to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Now, Isaiah is just the Greek spelling of Isaiah. So he's reading Isaiah. And what better way to pass the long hours on a brutally long road trip than study scripture? In fact, many of you are doing that as we speak. I know a lot of incredible truck drivers uh, who on their long haul journeys are just listening to Unshaken and are grateful that it takes so long because their, their, their drives are even longer. Bless you. Okay, uh, Look at, at the Ethiopian eunuch as the patron saint of every righteous truck driver. Okay, uh, And that's what, that, what he's doing, studying scripture along the way. Now, the Spirit says to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And again, here's a chance for a missionary to follow the Spirit's guidance. To get close to people and then get closer still. First step, go near. Second step, join thyself. Where? This one. This chariot. And yeah, the fact it's a chariot means you better hurry. I love every word of this. Because there is a sense that there's a window of opportunity and we need to take advantage of the opportunity while that window is open. And it's the Spirit that will help us know it's the Spirit that will help us draw near to break down barriers, to become friends, to create relationships, and then to act on the Spirit's guidance when the Spirit lets us know, now's the time to, to run. If it's a chariot, you're going to have to run because it's, it's going. And if you wait, the day may have passed you by. Heller Irene talked about this once years ago, about someone he knew, someone he intended, wished he would have shared the gospel with, and then learned of the man's passing, and felt, felt this horrible twinge of guilt that someday he'd see this man again, and, he'd, and the man would ask him, why didn't you tell me? You knew. Why didn't you give me a chance to find out? You knew the gospel. I remember on my mission once, <laughs> there was a district, or excuse me, there was an area, a companionship that was struggling, just didn't have much to do, and, and felt like we're wasting our time in this area. Well, we took our whole zone, 
and went to their area and divided up the companionships, kind of shuffled the deck a bit, and then put everyone in, we, we dropped uh, these new companionships for the day off in different places. Uh, supermarket and mall or post office, just whatever. And said, okay, for, for these hours, it's just street contacting constantly. Talk to everyone you possibly can. Then for these hours, it's tracting. You get this neighborhood, you get that one. And then we're gonna come together at the chapel at the end of the night and just to have, here's your three by five cards, write down the names of any, but anyone that's willing to listen to the message. And then we're gonna give them all to the missionaries that serve in this area. And they're gonna have their work cut out for them for until they get through the whole stack. And uh, we called it a, a blitz and we blitzed that area. And it was amazing. I was in a leadership position. So I got a greener, a greener missionary and he became my companion for the day. And I just more than anything, I wanted him to overcome his fear. I wanted him to become a bold missionary and get over the thought of like, oh, it's awkward to go talk to strangers. It's like, well, embrace the awkwardness, baby, because that's what missionaries do. And I remember we were at a, in a shopping complex, like a strip mall, and, and anytime somebody passed, it's like, hey, excuse me, yeah, we're talking to everybody. And it was fun to watch this young missionary start to get outside himself and learn that, okay, even if I get rejected, it's not the end of the world. And, and I'm going to try. Now, at one point, I'm talking to everyone I can. There was a little lull. I saw this guy, like, across the parking lot, like, getting up to his car. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, too bad it's too late to reach that guy. And immediately I felt this spirit whisper, what do you mean it's too late? He's right there. Run. And it was the equivalent of... Phil, uh, the Ethiopian getting on his chariot and Philip being told, go join yourself to that one and hurry because they're, they're taking off. So I started running across the parking lot. My companion for the day is like, whoa, 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 Elder, where are you going? And I yelled because I was afraid he was going to get into his car before he even noticed me. And I just yelled one word, espera, which means wait. And this poor Puerto Rican like hears a, a yell thankfully knows it's, it's focused on him, turns around and sees this gringo in white shirt and tie like sprinting across a parking lot at him, yelling, espera. Well, he, he embraced the awkwardness too. Uh, maybe just curiosity, but he stayed. And I'm like, and I ran up to him and said, hey, I know you're leaving. You don't have any time and neither do I, but we have a message that'll change your life. If you'll just give us a chance to come back when both of us do have time, I'd love to share it with you. And he said, okay. Sounds good. And here's my address. And I'm writing it down and came coming back and gave that referral along with a stack of others from the whole zone. Those missionaries had more work to do in the next month or two than they knew what to do with. But there's, there's something about oh, joining chariots. Again, be, be patient, be wise, more than anything, be filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one that will say, this chariot, as opposed to that one. Or run, as opposed to wait. Open your mouth, as opposed to keep it closed for now. I just fear that sometimes we're on the default setting of closing mouths. Instead of the default setting of keeping it open, because chances are people need their chance to hear the gospel. Well, this eunuch was well prepared. And verse 30, Philip ran thither to him. There's the speed. There's the immediate obedience. 
And as he's running, I don't know how long this is taking, is he just sprinting alongside? He heard him read the prophet Isaiah. Reading out loud vocally was more common in that day. And what I love here is, are we really listening to the other person? Can we hear them, what they're reading, how they're feeling, what they're thinking? And this is intentional listening. This is active ears, okay? So hear them. And then Philip asked an inspired question. Understandest thou what thou readest? Which is so beautiful. It's not just, hey, what, what you doing there? Oh, I see you're reading, or I hear you're reading Isaiah. That's so impressive. No, it's not just about doing, it's about understanding what we do. Otherwise, the person might merely be blessed for doing something when they could have been blessed by doing it. Catch the difference? Being blessed for doing something isn't really getting much out of it. I don't understand the, the, the activity itself, but I'm doing something right. I'm checking a box. I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and I'm sure God will bless me for that. I've been to way too many meetings like that where I'm like, man, I got nothing out of that. But I, I went as I was supposed to, and I hope God will bless me for it. But man, when you understand, when you're really learning and it's, oh, creating new neural pathways, the, the lights are, the light bulbs are coming on above our heads. It's like, man, you don't have to bless me for this. I was blessed by this. This was amazing. What a meeting. What a class. What a lesson. Because I get it. I think too often as Latter-day Saints, we're so busy with the doing that we don't worry so much about the understanding and talk about a bag with holes. Talk about not getting much out of it compared to what we could be getting if we understood. Remember in Matthew 13 when Jesus taught all those parables of the kingdom? What's he say at the end of it? Understandest thou? Do you get this? Is this making sense? It's one of the things I wish that we were in the same room together so I could read facial cues and go, yeah, they still don't get it. Or they got it a long time ago and now they're bored and he, as, as I keep repeating myself. I'm sorry there's no instant feedback like that. But, but are we getting this? Philip wants to know, do you understand what you read? Now, the, the eunuch's response is so humble, it's so vulnerable. He said, how can I except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him, which is beautiful. He, Philip's been getting closer and closer. Go near, join thyself. Now, come up, sit with me. In fact, guide me. I love this verse because I'm a teacher. That's what I feel called of God to do. And I meet people everywhere I go that I'm so impressed with because they're doing even when sometimes they're not understanding. Honestly, I'm blown away by members of the church who have spent a lifetime studying scripture because they know they're supposed to and yet feel sometimes like they're beating their heads against the wall. Like, I don't get it. All this context and background information, I don't understand it. Old Testament especially. It's a, the past is a foreign country, as historians say, and I need, a, I need a guide. To those of you, and I've met so many that are so grateful for teachers because I finally understand what I'm reading. I loved it in the Old Testament year where like, it's finally making sense to me. I loved it in the Doctrine and Covenants year where it's like, I finally get something, I'm getting something out of this book. 
My, one of my favorite things in teaching is seeing the light bulb come on for people when they finally understand. But what impresses me so much is, I can't believe you kept on reading all these years. Because I'm afraid that if it were me, I would have gotten frustrated and just thrown in the towel. And lots of people have. My first year of coordinating Seminary and Institute in Tennessee was so beyond me. Just trying to stretch my snorkel so that, assuming there was still air up top, but just feeling buried by my responsibilities and buried by my inadequacies. I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember I would come home almost every day and vent to my poor wife. And this became my mantra. Expectation without education is frustration. And boy, did I feel that frustration. Because my expectations were sky high. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to be and help these Seminary Institute kids become. But I didn't know how to do it. My expectations so far surpassed my education. So much of it was, I mean, they gave us training, but I didn't know what, I didn't even know what questions to ask yet. All the training, you know, you've been there, I'm sure, when you get trained for things and then after it, you're trying actually to do it, you're like, that's why they trained me on that. It's not that I wasn't paying attention. I just, I didn't even know what you were talking about. So much training has to be on the job training for that exact reason. But during the process, man, those growing pains are excruciating. And the gap between expectation and education fills with frustration. And, and we've all been there. Unfortunately, what most people tend to do is lower the expectation and go, fine, I'll just do it my own way and, and bring expectations down. Or they'll just dismiss the whole thing and go, I, I, forget it, I'm moving on to something else. And I don't want the frustration, so I don't want the expectation. See ya. Then again, there are those that slog through and endure the frustration because they refuse to lower the expectation. I know this is what God demands of me. I just don't get it. For many, it's the temple. For many, it's the scriptures. And if there are two treasure troves of truth, it's the temple and the scriptures. But so often there we are on our chariot, valiantly trying slogging our way through Isaiah of all places. I mean, if there's any book that it, it's wise to ask, hey, you, do you understand what you're reading? Yeah, it's Isaiah. And the answer invariably is going to be no. How can I? Isaiah? Prophet? Poet? I don't know. Hebrew symbolism and synonymous parallelism? I don't get Hebrew poetry. And you need... A teacher you need a guide and I'm so grateful for the teachers that helped me come to understanding I pray that I can be a teacher that helps guide you if you let me or let any of my fellow teachers join you on your chariot then bless you but bless you for having slogged on for so long as a friend of mine who has his own Come Follow Me channel said, there are probably more people in the church studying scripture now than ever in the church's history. And that's awesome. To which I would also add, it's not just that more people are studying. I think more people are understanding than ever before. And that makes all the difference.
but it does suggest that the hunger was always there. That you wanted, that you wished, that you hoped, that you tried, that you worked. And it's finally all paying off. Bless you for that. Now verse 32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. So now we get to we get to be we get we get to join Philip on the chariot just like he got to join the Ethiopian. And now we get to overhear the scripture that he's reading. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. Starting to pick up where in Isaiah we're reading? In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now with that, stops reading and begins questioning. He said to Philip, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Now, if you know your Isaiah, or even if you know your Abinadi in the book of Mosiah, then you know that this is Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 is probably the most Christ-centered chapter in the whole Old Testament. I mean, there's others that would fight for that title, but mm, this is a good one. This is saturated in the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the suffering servant song that speaks of a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That with his stripes we are healed. He bore our transgressions. He carried our sorrows. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. This is as messianic a messianic prophecy as you can get. And here's an Ethiopian eunuch wondering, who's he talking about? This sounds really important. It sounds like our salvation is riding on this guy. Who's this guy? Is this Isaiah? Is he talking about himself? Is he the suffering servant? Or is someone else. Now, what's amazing, again, as a, as a Latter-day Saint, we're like, duh. As a Christian, we're like, come on. But do you realize that Judaism and Christianity still divide over this exact text? For Judaism, the suffering servant is Israel itself. In a way, the prophet was speaking of himself and his people. And all that the house of Israel has gone through in suffering because of the world's sins, but taking it as a lamb before the slaughter in hopes of presenting a better way, a more peaceful way. The Jews have been forced into that object lesson position for millennia, and it's wrong, it's tragic. Anti-Semitism is evil to the core. But to think that the house of Israel is the suffering servant who saves us, it's still one step removed. Because, yes, that's true, but that's indirect. It's indirect because the house of Israel is meant to extend the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant to everyone. It's supposed to get the living water to the end of the row so that Christ, the true suffering servant, can save us all. That's the message of Isaiah 53. But to picture this eunuch confused, he has every reason to be. Okay, Don't judge him harshly for this. It's Isaiah after all. Cut him some slack. Now, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. After all, you asked me to. You sensed your need of a guide, and 
As they say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, Philip has appeared. He opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. That's my favorite verse in this whole story. Because to me, it's the goal of every gospel teacher. It's the mission of every missionary. It's to bring souls unto Christ. So, of course, we preach unto him Jesus. But did you catch how Philip did it? He started at that same scripture. You see, if you were to give someone directions that's not with you, picture somebody calls you and says, oh, my GPS is not working and I don't, I, I don't know where I am. Can you help me? You'd have to ask two questions at least, because there are two pieces of information that are absolutely essential. Usually we only think about destination. Oh, you're lost? Where are you trying to go? And once we know the destination, we think that we're in. Oh, okay, great. Now I know where you want to go. But direction cannot help if we don't know present location. You understand why we need both? We need intended destination, but I've got to know present location so I can connect the dots. Not just where you're going, but where are you right now? Now, for us, we know that the destination holds true for everyone. We are trying to preach unto them Jesus. Because Christ is, Christ is where we all need to go. He's always the destination. I know that, no matter what your current circumstance. But what I don't know are what those current circumstances are. What I don't know is present location. And that's what I need to find out. That's why when people call or email and ask some question, oh, you can just give me a quick 15-minute response. I'm like, no, it's going to take a couple hours. Because I know the destination. I just don't know the location. Tell me where you are. To, to borrow from this language, what scripture are you on? And I don't mean the canon. I mean your condition. What page are you on? What page in life? Are, do you believe? Do you doubt? What do you believe? What do you doubt? How deep are the cracks in your foundation? It's all the diagnostics that are required before prescription should come. It's find out what page a person's on. I just got an email from someone saying, how do I refute the CES letter? And I provided some resources, but then said, it's not a matter of refutation so much as it's a matter of relationship. Because you can pummel this person with all of the facts that you can produce. But what, what was driving them to accept those things in the first place? What have they been through that makes them want to believe the decontextualized information and half-truths that are all over that document. I, I want to know where the person's coming from. I want to know what page they're on. And the best teachers or missionaries or parents or shepherds or friends are those who can connect the dots. Now I'll admit, if that person's on Isaiah 53, then connecting them to Christ should be easy. Like I said, there's no more messianic passage in the book than that. 
So going from Isaiah 53 to Jesus Christ is a quick hop, skip, and a jump. In fact, I don't even think you need all three. The challenge will become doing that no matter what page they're on. So pray for it. Follow the Holy Ghost. Because Jesus has an incredible way of being able to meet everyone, no matter where they are. It's we that sometimes struggle with that. So step one, find out where the person is. What page are they on? Step two, figure out from that location, how do I bring them to the destination, which is Jesus? That's what real teaching and leading should be. Okay? We can do this. I know we can. With the Spirit's help, I know we can. Now, it, Philip definitely had that power. He was filled with it, right? And so verse 36 and 37, As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And baptism is exactly what happens next. But notice the conversation between these two men. Philip has already walked the eunuch through the scriptures and helped him see the, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And a man named Jesus. You just missed him. You came to Jerusalem a little late. But he dwelt among us. The word was made flesh, and he rose again. The eunuch gets this first discussion. The principles and ordinances of the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, and then baptism in water and in fire to receive the Holy Ghost. And as they're passing by water on the way, I love that it dawns on the eunuch. He's the one that brings it up. What's keeping me back? What doth hinder me to be baptized? That is such a great question. It's self-aware. It's self-reflective. It's self-directed. And it's one of the most inspired questions we could possibly ask ourselves. What's holding me back? What's hindering me from progressing? Why am I not repenting of that sin that I keep on struggling with? Why won't I come back to church? Why won't I forgive that person? Why won't I lay down my weapons of rebellion? What's stopping me from getting my patriarchal blessing, really? What down deep is keeping me from becoming the person I want to be? Why do I refuse to sustain that leader or accept that calling? Or pay my tithing, or just return to God? Such an inspired question. And if we have an open heart to receive, I know the Spirit will respond and will know. It's the Lord is it I moment. It's the Lord is it this moment. Elder Maxwell said, the answer will come, and you probably will have known what it was for a long, long time. We've just been living in self-denial. Well, the eunuch doesn't want to deny anything. So what's keeping me? And Philip's response is equally inspired. Well, if you believe, with all your heart, all in, full in, real intent, then thou mayest. 
And to me, that word is so powerful. As missionaries, I don't know if I ever used that phrase with a would-be convert. Because usually it was me pleading with them to be baptized. Uh, and I think too often that's the case where it's almost like we're desperate. And we just, you'd really be doing the, the church a favor if you'd come. Please, will you be baptized? If we're not so desperate, sometimes instead we're like, so we're too demanding. And it's not thou mayest, it's thou oughtest. Thou mustest. <laughs> it's, you, it's a commandment of God. And you need to fulfill all righteousness, just like Jesus did. And it's a commandment to be baptized, so will you be baptized? And there's that direct will you invitation that's such good textbook missionary skills. But if we've taught with sufficient spirit that people know for themselves and desire conversion, where instead of us asking them to be baptized, it's them asking us if they can. And then it's not us saying please or even saying you should, but instead, you know, you may. We're not doing God favors joining his church. God is doing us favors by letting us in. Baptism and all that it entails is not a right that we claim. It's a gift that we receive. It's like Simon. Priesthood power isn't something we purchase, at least not with money. We pay a price, but that's not the one. And even when we've paid it, God doesn't owe us anything. It's not a debt. Paul will teach that powerfully through practically every letter he writes. God does not owe us anything. But he wants to give us everything. And so in his mercy, in his generosity, in his abundant grace, he says to us, you may. You may repent. You may come clean. You may enter my house and my kingdom. You can. I will be thou clean. Oh, then verse 38 and 39. He, the eunuch, commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water. By the way, this sounds a lot more like immersion than it does like sprinkling, doesn't it? If they're both going down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, again, sounds like immersion, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And there's plenty to rejoice over, believe me. For a eunuch to be permitted to join the church? Old Testament said they're cut off from Israel. That's what made Isaiah 56 so incredible. Like, wait, wait, wait. They are going to be allowed entrance? Well, is Acts chapter 8 a fulfillment of Isaiah 56? A preview of coming attractions as all nations are welcomed in? What's No wonder it's a, it's a thou, thou mayest. Yes, you can come. No wonder... Well, maybe that's... There's another level to the eunuch's question. What's hindering me from being baptized? 
Is he kind of looking at Philip, wondering if Philip can provide some of the response? Like, are there things still? I know I don't fit in. I know I don't fit the mold. I'm not like everyone else. But I, but I believe. In fact, that's the word he uses. It's a powerful verb. The, the eunuch's testimony at the end here, notice what he said and notice what he didn't say. He'd said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Remember that? That was his testimony. He didn't say, I'd like to remember my testimony that I know this church is true. And yet that seems to be the line we always use habitually. We say, I know, the eunuch said, I believe. And what we tend to express knowledge about is the truthfulness of the church. What the eunuch expressed his belief in was the identity of Christ, the divinity of Christ. When did belief become such lowly language to the point that knowledge is the only thing we're allowed to claim? That's the verb we're supposed to use. I know. If you know, then awesome. Use it. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. But if you can, quote-unquote, only say that you believe, oh, you're in good company. You're in some of the best company of all time. Belief is a beautiful thing because it recognizes the risk of faith and the reality of doubt, at least its potentiality. It's exercising faith. In fact, knowledge, as we learn in Alma 32 and in the story of the brother of Jared, knowledge comes to supplant faith. Not only does it eliminate doubt, but it eliminates faith too, because we just know for sure. Well, where's the risk in that? And where there's less risk, there's less reward. I mean, when perfect knowledge comes, faith lies dormant in that thing. So belief is an incredibly powerful verb. And again, it has less to do with the church is true and more to do with Jesus is the Christ. The eunuch's testimony is absolutely beautiful. And he can stand on that. He can stand on that testimony in his own two feet, independent of his, quote-unquote, missionary. Because Philip's gone. Interesting the way this story ends. As soon as the eunuch has been baptized, the Spirit, you'd expect it to be, and the Spirit of the Lord descended upon the Ethiopian. Well, again, I don't know if Philip has the authority, because he didn't confirm the people in Samaria. He's not confirming the eunuch here. Will he have to wait for an apostle to journey to Ethiopia and finish things? I don't know. But the Spirit of the Lord comes to take away Philip. What, what, where, where'd he go? He's gone. But that doesn't phase the eunuch at all. The teacher appeared seemingly miraculously. Who sprints up next to a chariot? But he also disappeared equally miraculously. Well, more miraculously. But I, it's okay. The teacher was there for that pivot point, for that life-changing moment. When I came to understand, he connected the dots between location and destination. And now I'm on the path. I can, I can get to the destination from here. There's a, there's a difference between creating disciples and dependence when you're a teacher. 
And a disciple is someone who's going to engage in the discipline and is learning, not just learning from the teacher, but learning how to be a teacher themselves. And, and that's what the Lord is looking for, disciples. We're not looking for dependence. Because too often, if that's the case, then when the missionary leaves, the convert leaves with them. And I lost my missionary, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to be a member of the church without them. No, missionaries need to be more like Philip, and converts need to be more like the eunuch. And when the missionary is transferred, rejoice that someone else is going to have their turn with the teacher. Someone else on some distant chariot, equally confused and equally in need. Got it? So, powerful, powerful things in this story from start to finish. And then here's the finish. Verse 40, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So, sure enough, he kept on going. He was caught away not to rest in his retirement, not to sit on his laurels after a good daily turn. Now, if the day is still going, then keep doing good turns. I used to joke with Boy Scouts because Boy Scouts, that's one of their slogans, right? Do a good turn daily. And when I was a leader and a boy would do something nice, you know, some morning at scout camp, I'd always joke and go, hey, you already did your good turn daily. You can be a jerk for the rest of the day. And they'd look at me weird and go, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Keep doing more good turns, will you? And Philip is doing exactly that. He is off and running for other chariots. Now, Hopefully by now, we've come to expect something in Luke's writings, in the book of Acts, that wherever there is a growth of the kingdom, there is a growth in opposition to it. We saw that multiple rounds last week under the direction of Peter and John. Well, now we're going to see some more of it here. We saw growth in Samaria, and then Simon the sorcerer comes along. We saw an, a miracle here with this Ethiopian eunuch. Well... Brace yourself, because next, we're, the pendulum's going to swing back to the darker side and more opposition. Chapter 9 is a story of, uh, at least it starts as a story of opposition. But as we've learned already, the Lord takes opposition and turns it to his own cause. And I don't know if there's a better example of it in the whole New Testament than here. Because it's in chapter 9 that Saul the persecutor becomes Paul the proselyter. <laughs> that an enemy becomes an advocate and and his story of conversion is breathtaking in fact in a lot of ways just like what we did with philip and the ethiopian eunuch slowing it down looking phrase by phrase for ideas and insights about missionary work we can do the same thing here with principles about repentance because he spells them out beautifully but first what does he need to repent of Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And Saul, we're back to him, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now again, we see a repeat of what we saw in the previous chapter. Men and women are both equally endangered. Equal opportunity, persecutor as always. But he's intensified things since we saw him last. First, he was just holding the coats. Now, 
you know, he's passing his cloak on to lesser deputies. He's the, the new sheriff in town. He is you know, intentional. In fact, he's proactive. It's not that he's just willing to go at the high priest's request. He's requesting the high priest for permission. Like, hey, you know, I'm doing all I can to fight the spread of Christianity, this, this horrible contagion here in Jerusalem, but it's spreading far and wide. So can I go far and wide to kind of cut off that, that leading edge? Can I have a letter of recommendation to go extend my condemnation? And desiring these letters to go as far away as Damascus, I don't even know if that's going to be far enough, if Nicholas is a proselyte from Antioch, if we just found another convert heading back to Ethiopia, will the darkness be able to keep up with the spreading light? Well, Paul is serious about trying to, to do that. And it's, did you catch the phrase? It's not just threatenings he's breathing out. It's slaughter he's after. That's strong language. What will the saints be able to do in the face of that kind of persecution? It's almost like they'd be powerless to be able to resist it on their own. Well, good thing they're not on their own. And the Lord always has the backs of his believers. So verse 3, And as he journeyed, so he is on a collision course with his own condemnation, he's barreling towards self-destruction, he's journeying, in a wrong direction. And again, if we're thinking about repentance here and looking for principles, this is one big problem. He's got a negative goal and he's on the way to fulfill it. In fact, he came near Damascus. So almost to that point of doing real damage where it's so much harder to recover from this. Am I approaching the sin that I intend to commit? Have I come near it? Almost to this point, I, I, we're never to the point of no return, but a point where return is incredibly difficult. Notice he's near Damascus, but he hasn't yet arrived. And suddenly, and yes, this can happen in an instant when we come to our senses. Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And that's the moment when the light finally comes on. Light that helps us see our sins for what they really are. Light that helps us see ourselves in a mirror and recognize that I don't like what I'm looking at. That light from heaven is what illuminates us and shines the way toward real repentance. It's what humbles us. And that's what happens to Saul here. He fell to the earth. There's true humility. There's broken heart and contrite spirit symbolically. Do we fall to the earth? Or do we keep fighting our dukes up? In Saul's case, he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Can you hear this in the voice of the Savior? Who always seemed to <laughs> call people's attention by repeating their name twice. Martha, Martha. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or Simon, Simon. The Lord knows who this man is, even though he's an enemy. The Lord calls him and calls him by name. 
He calls it twice to make sure he has his attention. And then such a powerful question. Why persecutest thou me? When you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. If that's true of our acts of service, it's also true of our acts of opposition. And though you are, you think you're only persecuting Christians, really you're persecuting Christ. Someone who bears his name, who has tried to take upon themselves his image and countenance. Why are you persecuting me? And again, if, if, Paul, if Saul excuse me, would take the time to be self-reflexive, as much as the Ethiopian eunuch had been, that's a really good question. Why am I doing this? Think hard. What is motivating my actions? Just like we saw before, what's keeping me from making these changes? Well, why aren't I doing this? Why am I approaching people in this way? What lies at my core? What insecurities and inadequacies, what experiences, what perspectives and perceptions? Why do I do this? Why do I treat people the way I do? Why do I look at myself the way I do? In some ways, this is good therapy that the Lord is trying to offer Saul to get back to the core of it all. Why are you doing this? Well, Saul has a question of his own, and it's a fascinating one. In verse 5, he responds, Who art thou, Lord? He recognized the, the me in the Savior's question, but didn't know the identity behind it. Why persecute thou me? As far as Saul sees, this is just a voice coming through the light. Who are you talking? Well, who's talking here? Who art thou? By the way, that's the source of all Saul's problems. It's the reason he's persecuting believers. It's because he doesn't know the Lord. What did Pharaoh say to Moses when Moses said, The Lord said, let my people go? Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? When Abinadi cried repentance to King Noah and said, the Lord demands that you repent. What did King Noah say in response? Who's the Lord? Saul is asking that question. Who's the Lord? If life eternal, John 17, is to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So if life eternal is truly knowing God, then no wonder the opposite of life eternal is the opposite of knowing God. It's asking questions like, who art thou? I don't know. And the Lord responds, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Jesus took this personally. It hurts him after all that he's done for everyone else. Do you know who I am? I'm the person that you're so opposed to. I'm the person you're breathing out threatenings and slaughter against. I'm the person whose people you are persecuting. And then this incredible insight, the Lord says to his persecutor, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. 
It's hard, isn't it so? Not hard in terms of degree of difficulty, but hard in terms of intensity of pain, because you're kicking against the pricks. A prick is a, like a cattle goad. We sometimes, or cowboys and others, sometimes use like electric shock as a cattle prod. It's just enough that it hurts them to move them forward, as far as I understand. I'm no, I'm no cowboy. In the ancient world, what would they do? They would take a stick and carve so that one end of it was sharp. It would prick the animal. And by poking them with this sharpened stick, hopefully the animal would move in the direction that the master wanted it to go. I'm not trying to hurt the animal. This is my, this is my ox. This is my donkey. This is my horse. I'm trying to move it forward. But it doesn't want to go. I hope it's willing to be merely pricked. If it starts fighting back, it's probably going to end up getting cut. And you remember the difference between those two verbs. Soft hearts get pricked. Hard hearts get cut. And pricked hearts repent. Cut hearts fight back. To this point, Saul, you're, you're fighting back. I'm calling, and now I'm doing it far more personally than ever before. And you keep kicking. Imagine, I mean, again, picture this literally, where you're just poking, gently but forcefully, poking the animal, and it gets so frustrated with these pricks that it ends up lashing out and kicking back at you. Well, imagine if it caught the prick in its hoof or in its leg and you were just gently nudging and it kicks into it, yeah, that would hurt. Yeah, the prick just went into a cut. And that's hard on an animal with a hardness that the master never intended. You're doing this to yourself. And it's incredible to feel the the sadness in the Lord's voice, not just in the phrase of, you're persecuting me, but even more so in the phrase, and it's hurting you. It hurts, you're hurting yourself far more than you could ever hurt me. It's like what Cecil B. DeMille said about the Ten Commandments, we don't break them, we break ourselves against them. And Saul, dear Saul, I know it hurts. I'm sorry for that. That's why I'm here to help. I'm here to remove that prod because it's hurting you. Will you let me? Will you let me come with healing in my wings? Will you put your dukes down? Might have never been up. Will you let me help? Now Saul, in verse 6, was trembling and astonished. Can you picture him finally realizing the seriousness of what he's been doing? Is that a moment for us as we come to ourselves? We ask ourselves these deep probing questions. We wonder why we're doing certain things. We're almost to the point of these serious, serious sins, but something holds us back for a moment and we realize just how close we were to succumbing. We come to know the Savior in ways that we didn't before. We realize we're only hurting ourselves and we come away trembling and astonished. I can't believe what I've done. I can't believe what I was about to do. 
In Saul's case, he said, Lord, which is such a beautiful admission that I'm willing to accept your direction now. You are my master. Forget going to the high priest for permission. I'm coming to you now as my Lord. And then the ultimate question, the best question we could ever ask him, what wilt thou have me to do? You are my Lord after all. You are my ruler, my guide. I've been doing something wrong. How can I make it right? What would you have me do? President Benson, in fact, said that's the most important question we could ever ask. And President Benson also said, pay attention that when Saul asked it, the answer didn't come from the Lord directly. It came from a servant of the Lord. And we need to be willing to accept servants' directions as well. In Saul's case, the Lord said unto him, Arise, which is so beautiful. He only brings us down to our knees in order to lift us up again. He doesn't demand that we stay there. No, arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. This is just a baby step. Your first step was listening to me. Take those steps, and then more light and direction will come. And like President Benson said, it would come through one of the Lord's servants. Lord, what would thou have me do? I'll go ask the bishop. What? It's just the bishop. He's not you. Oh, he's one of mine. Go ask the counselor in the Relief Society prisons. Be willing to trust a mere mortal. Best of all, go to the prophet and the apostles. You have an apostolic advantage after all. And listen to what they say in your hopes to repent. Well, we're going to meet that servant in just a moment. Starting in verse 9, The men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Now the JST of that switches it. It says, They who were journeying with him saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him who spake to him. Now, I'm kind of grateful for the confusion. And later instances of Paul explaining this, there'll still be some confusion here. To me, I love it because it's so beyond the norm. It's like, am I see, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? It's hard to explain. It's really hard to get other people to understand. Some people might see what you see, but they don't hear what you hear. Flip it around. Some might hear but not see. It's it's rare that someone will completely know what you're going through. And that's okay. This is a personal journey for the repentant soul. Just allow it to unfold. And don't expect everyone to understand everything that you're experiencing. But despite the confusion of those all around him, Saul arose from the earth, just as the Lord had told him. And when his eyes were opened, and this is true sight, if we take this symbolically. This is encountering the light of the world. He'd just been dazzled by it. But as we'll see in a moment, he was also blinded by it. His eyes were opened, and the only thing that he saw was that light. Next phrase, he saw no man. And I think there's a beautiful symbolism there too. Don't worry what other people think. This is like the leper braving the multitude. This is like the woman who didn't care what people would think. You've got to come. See no man. Don't worry about the executive secretary that you're setting up the appointment with. Don't worry about what the bishop's going to think. Believe me, he'll think more of you, not less. 
Saul saw no man. He only saw Jesus, and that's what mattered. But they, these others that were with him, led him by the hand. And usually we think of children being led by the hand, little toddlers that can't walk very well, people that are blind and need help going from where they are to where they need to be. You picture Saul becoming childlike and submissive? Well, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. Oh, three days of darkness, you mean? When was the last time that happened? Well, among the Nephites, anyway, this was reminiscent of Christ's death. You saw the light. You were blinded by it. You want to know what life is like without it? You were living in that darkness, but you didn't understand how dark things were. So let me introduce you to the true light and then take it away. So you'll know what you're missing. Also, Saul neither did eat nor drink, which is an easy one. Fasting, humility, maybe a recognition that we cannot provide even our most basic needs. We can't provide those for ourselves. We are totally reliant upon the goodness of God. You picture the Lord taking Saul down from his high perch and getting to a point where he is lowly, teachable, changeable, broken heart, contrite spirit. Well, in that condition, the Lord can then shift his attention. Verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And that name means gift of the Lord, or God has given. And boy, would he be a gift to Saul. To him, said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, so he knows his name too. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. We might even rephrase that, here am I, send me. Well, this servant of the Lord, reflective of the Lord's willingness to go and serve, receives this vision, and the Lord said unto him, Arise. Real repentance is going to take all of us standing up to our full stature. Saul's got to arise. Ananias needs to arise. Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight. Well, now he's making this too easy. <laughs> okay, a straight street. Oh, yeah, we're trying to get people into the straight and narrow path, aren't we? The, the crookedness of Saul's earlier journeys would be replaced with a straight path that he would never deviate from. So if we're looking for clues, thanks for an obvious one. Okay, straight street. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. And that might be a little more subtle hint, but the house of Judas, we think of Judas and here Judas Iscariot, but think of the Hebrew spelling and think of the house of Judah. Oh, and who was the lion of that tribe? It was Jesus. Real healing, forgiveness is going to come in the house of Judah through the Savior. And this Saul of Tarsus, behold, he prayeth. And that needs to be an ongoing part of our repentance process as well. Because of those prayers, he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And that's a beautiful insight because we're only getting this from Ananias' sight, not, not from Saul's. But Ananias is being told, Saul saw you just like you're seeing Saul. He saw you in a vision because that's the only eyesight he's got now. I've taken away his mortal sight because he was misusing it. He thought he was seeing things as they really were. He wasn't. So I, I showed him light and then took 
it away to leave him in darkness, but I didn't want to leave him there permanently. Let the light begin to dawn on him again, and it's going to come through you. Now, Ananias's response is interesting. Verse 13, he answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. Like, this guy's got a reputation, and, and it's, it's extended all the way here to Damascus. And he's on everybody's lips because everybody's afraid of him. I mean, we've heard stories that he went to like go talk to the high priest and then get like a letter of recommendation so he could come and extend his jurisdiction. We thought we were safe all the way out here in Damascus, but we're not because of that guy, Saul. I mean, the way Ananias responds, he gets more specific. It's not just I've heard about him, but this is what I've heard. How much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, can God get blinded by the light too? So the point, he can't see who he's, who he's dealing with? Are you missing something down here? Because from ground level, this does not seem like the guy we want to help in any way. If he's blind, then good, because he was using his sight to do harm. And if we can now hide in the shadows, all the better for us. And for thee, for thy kingdom. This guy does great evil. You know, it's really hard sometimes to overcome a bad reputation. Maybe that's why Luke introduced us to him first at the scene of Stephen's martyrdom. This is a bad guy. And we're kind of left with that. And we think we know Saul. Ananias thought he knew. But only God really does. And when it comes to repentance, there's something powerful about trusting God's impression. It's more than an impression. He knows who we really are. He knows who we've been, but he knows who we can become. And boy, he leans into that potential. From Saul's perspective, and we'll see this another time or two today, prepare to be misjudged. Because again, reputations are hard to overcome. First impressions are difficult to reverse. And here you even have a servant of the Lord, Ananias, the good guy, gift from God. And he's misjudging, well, not totally misjudging, but he's judging Saul and thinking, God, you probably got the wrong guy here. He's not worth saving. To which the Lord has a response. Verse 15, the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's an equal opportunity persecutor. Well, he will be an equal opportunity proselytizer and he will bless the nations, both the nation of Israel and the nations of the Gentiles from the, from the, from inside and outside, from the lowest to the highest kings themselves will hear his voice for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ouch. Not just how great things he will do for my name's sake. Oh, there'll be plenty of that too. But the things that he will suffer, but he'll be willing to suffer. Maybe that's why we introduced him at a martyrdom. Because that's an example he'll someday follow. And he'll have the courage to follow it. 
This is a chosen vessel. And in some ways, that's all we are, vessels. We're a big clay pot. And it's a matter of what we allow people to pour into us and who we allow to do the pouring. To this point, Saul has been filled with hatred, with animosity, but also with zeal. I like the zeal. He has been filled with desire to make a difference. And it's the wrong kind of difference he's making, but I like the desire. In other words, this guy Saul, he has momentum, plenty. Not so much direction, but I can deal with direction. This guy is so wound up and ready to go, all I have to do is pick him up and turn him around and then woo, he's still off and running. And he'll go in my direction instead of against it. He's a swimmer and he's been swimming downstream along the currents of conflict against these Christians. But to tell him that <laughs> we're now salmon swimming upstream? Oh, he'll swim with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. This is a chosen vessel unto me. And I am choosing him to do an incredible work. So Ananias, get over your blindness. You all have things to see. So verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, we keep seeing more and more of this. There were so many different ways Jesus blessed people in the Gospels, but we're seeing more and more of laying hands upon people to bless and heal and ordain and so on in the book of Acts. That becomes the norm. So putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul. I love that title. Oh, I doubted you at first. And shame on me for that. But you did have a reputation. But forget that. If the Lord considers you chosen, then I consider you choice as well. My brother, brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest. See, I'm aware of that. I believe in your experience. I trust what you've been through. That same Lord who called you, well, he hath sent me. And here's a chance for you to accept whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. So sorry that the Lord couldn't come, but he sent me and I am the next best thing. And he sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh yes, it's the Spirit that helps us truly see. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Now we know that baptism is a symbolic new birth, but so many other examples of that rebirth here in the example of Saul. His eyes finally opening. Can you picture a baby First breaths and first eyes open and scales fall and I can see this new world that I've stepped into. A baby emerging from the waters of the womb and now Saul coming up from the waters of baptism. This is a completely new life. One that, as we'll see later, will require a whole new name because the old one just doesn't fit anymore. In verse 19... That's not over. He now sees with new eyes. He breathes with new breath. Well, time to eat. It's been three days since you've taken any nourishment. So when he had received meat, he was strengthened. I don't know exactly what kind he ate, but it does remind me of Jesus with the woman at the well. 
speaking of meat to eat that you know not of, or my meat that is to do the will of my Father in heaven. That's strengthening meat if I've ever tasted it. And that's what Saul is consuming. And then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. The very people he had come to condemn are now turning it around and converting him, teaching him the things he doesn't know. I mean, he knows who the Lord is now. He's got an undeniable witness. But as far as the specifics of his doctrine, he's got a lot of catching up to do. Well, the disciples help him with that. And straightway, so immediately, as quickly as he could, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Talk about a quick study. Oh, just a few days with the disciples, that's all I needed. I know my Judaism like the back of my hand, and I just had to get over that hump of rejecting the possibility that it could be fulfilled without being destroyed. I now see my Old Testament in an entirely new light. Yeah, the scales came off all over, and I'm, I'm ready to go to the synagogue. I was earlier going to go defend the synagogue. Well, now it's time to go on the offensive. I'm not trying to tear down the synagogue, but trying to let those that are within it realize the fulfillment of everything they've been dreaming of, hoping for. Every messianic prophecy fulfilled in Christ, I've seen him, I know him. And with some clarification that I just received from the disciples, oh, call me to the work. I have desires to serve. And he serves with momentum, with zeal, the same Saul as always, just in a better direction. Now, that's shocking to everyone. Verse 21, all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Oh, yeah, we knew every intention. We were scared to death of it. But isn't this that same guy? I mean, this is a change so intense that you are completely unrecognizable to us. Well, that's kind of what conversion is meant to be. That's what transfiguration is, a change, a transformation. For Saul, this was a completely new life. And oh, he grew in that new life. Verse 22, Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Like the young Jesus, growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And in Saul's case, who better to teach Jews than someone who knew Judaism so well? Who better than a convert to teach those that are still holding to their former beliefs? I loved it when I had a convert companion in the mission field who could, when somebody said, oh no, I can't join your church, I'm a part of, you know, soy catolico. And the wonderful companion has been able to say, oh, I was too. And I was so grateful for that upbringing and the, the preparation it gave me, but did you not connect that dot to this one? How oh, it's fulfilled. And, and this is what we've all been prepared for. Now, if you remember from our history lesson in chapter 7, that's exactly what Stephen had been trying to do. That's exactly what cost Stephen his life. And sure enough, Saul is following that example too. Verse 
23, after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. We've got to get rid of this guy, like we got rid of Stephen, like we got rid of Jesus, like the threats to get rid of Peter and John. But their laying await was known of Saul. Well, he knows their tactics. He was one of them. He knows what he's dealing with here. So what's the enemy doing? They watched the gates day and night to kill him. And in response, the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. Now, interesting escape route there, but it was necessary in Saul's case. No other way to get out if they're guarding the gates day and night. It actually reminds me of the escape of, the escape of those Israelite spies during the conquest of Canaan. Remember this from the book of Joshua? When Rahab recognizes these spies as servants of the true God, you're the good guys, we're the bad guys, yikes. Can I be on your side? I'll be... I'll deliver you if you'll deliver me. And she lets them out through the window, down the wall, with a rope that would later become a token of her own salvation. This seems to be happening with Saul in a similar way. But also, did you catch the detail? It's the disciples that took him and let him down. Now, maybe that's because he can't let himself down, but maybe it's also that he wasn't going to back down. And we'll see this repeatedly. Saul was fearless. Just like the apostles that could not be scattered, well, Paul, Saul could not be moved. And I'm not, no, I'm, I'll face him. They're at the gate watching. Let me go straight out there. And gates are places of debate and judgment. Well, I know I can beat them. I know I can prove that this is very Christ. I can confound everyone. You might need to calm down a bit. Uh, we don't want this to turn into a Bible bash every time. Because you bash the Bible, they're going to end up bashing you in more physical ways. But it's these disciples that are prevailing upon Saul. you got to save yourself. There's more work to be done. And you going out in a blaze of glory. You'll be a martyr, all right. But... Not yet. You'll follow Stephen in death, but you got some following in life to do first. So, and we'll see this repeated multiple times. That's why I'm bringing it up now. Okay. They're orchestrating this escape. Then verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he made it all the way home. He essayed to join himself to the disciples. In other words, he tried, he attempted, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And again, can you blame them? Their reaction is just like Ananias's one was initially. I know this guy. He's got a reputation and we're supposed to be scared of him. Is he being like a double agent now? Is he only, it's kind of like Simon. Did he have ulterior motives for being baptized? And Simon was in it for himself. And is Saul in it for himself as well? But some kind of incognito convert so he can find out who the... I mean, he got these letters. He's trying to figure out who the believers are in Damascus so he can drag them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison and slaughter, maybe even worse than prison. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. So we don't trust him. Not at all. Well, that's the hard part. With conversion, we need to trust people's change. Imagine if the Nephites had not trusted the anti-Nephi Lehi's and thought, oh, no, 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 these Lamanites are only trying to 
come into Nephite territory so they can slay us closer at hand. No, instead they trusted. And we ended up being saved by that. The church is going to get saved by Paul. And so you better let Saul in. Even when yeah, you're not so sure about things. And again, from Saul's perspective, don't misjudge them for misjudging you. They're afraid for a reason. And we've got to eliminate pride from above and pride from below. Mistrust from above and mistrust from below and judgment in both directions. Instead, what can you do, Saul? Well, spend the rest of your life proving them wrong. Spend the rest of your life giving evidence. You've proven that Jesus is the very Christ. Well, prove that you are a very disciple and that you are sincere. And Saul slash Paul would do exactly that. But to start the process, sometimes all it takes is one believer to believe in you and back you up. And that's what you see in verse 27. You see Barnabas again. The same Barnabas we met back in, what, chapter 4? Who sold all his land so he could have money to lay at the apostles' feet to consecrate to all those that are around? Well, this time he's consecrating something else. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. That's all it took. Just somebody to back him up, somebody to believe in what Saul had experienced, somebody that could bear witness of the good that Saul had done. I love Barnabas for this. Remember what Peter and John said to the layman? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Well, in Barnabas's case, he could say the same. Silver and gold have I none. I consecrated it all a couple chapters ago. But such as I have, give I thee. And I have faith in you. I trust your conversion. I have validation to give. I have an arm to put around you. I, I want to introduce you to every other disciple I know. No wonder Barnabas will become a mission companion of Saul. He was backing him up from the very beginning. He saw his goodness. He wasn't as blind as Ananias had started, or as the other disciples had been. I love that Barnabas is doing that for his newfound friend, Saul. Verse 28 then, he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. There's Saul living the life of a disciple, going along with everybody else, associating with them so they can come to trust his change. He's coming in, going out. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's definitely one of Saul's gifts. And he disputed against the Grecians. Unfortunately, that's also another one of his gifts, quote-unquote. And he's going to have to learn to control that one, okay? Makes you actually wonder, though, if he's disputing against the Grecians, is, if those are the more Hellenized Jews, and Saul is more of a traditional oh, Jewish Jew, is he too Jewish here, disputing them? Well, He's going to swing that pendulum under the Lord's direction and going to become the greatest champion for the Gentiles that the church had ever known. But here's, again, disputation is what he's, what he's doing. 
And though disputation might sometimes win friends and influence people, it definitely stokes the anger of your enemies. And that's what happens here. But they went about to slay him. More opposition everywhere he goes. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Like, Saul, you actually ought to go home. Can we get you out of here? And it's for your sake. We trust you now. Okay, we're not afraid of you. But now we're afraid for you. And all this opposition, <laughs> we were scared of what you'd do to us. Now your old compatriots are scared of what you're going to do for us. Uh, so the opposition is now aimed in your direction. You got to get out of here. So oh, I'll take them down. I know those guys. I know their way. It's okay. So calm down. Calm down. Uh, we're going to have to lower you through another basket. We're going to have to get you out of town somehow. It's the brethren who know it. And they brought him to Caesarea. So that's the second example of what we've already seen. We're going to see more of them later on. Well, verse 31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. You remember how the growth of the church leads to the growth of persecution. But the growth of persecution leads to the growth of the church. Interesting cycle there. And here in Saul's case, now oh, he is confirming his own change. Providing them the evidence that they needed. Providing the Lord... Oh, proving the Lord was right in his estimation of Saul's potential. A chosen vessel who is now filled with wisdom and power and the Spirit of God. Filled with zeal, but zeal towards a, a higher and nobler calling. And he's giving it all he's got. The church, as a result, is walking in the fear of the Lord. They just, tra they just traded out their fear of Saul for a Saul-inspired fear of the Lord. A reverence for the Lord's name. And the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, is there throughout it all. Then in verse 32, we shift back to Peter. Oh, he's been out doing things all the, the, the whole time, but we don't always get to follow his every footstep. For the rest of this chapter, we'll get to spend some more time with the chief apostle. And enjoy it, because we don't get much more from him before the spotlight fully shifts to focus on Paul and his ministry. So two more stories here. There on the heels of Saul's conversion is a man who has no heels to stand on of his own. Here's a lame man named Aeneas. And Peter's about to perform a miracle. Verse 32, it came to pass as Peter passed through all quarters. There he is making the rounds as chief apostle. He came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And that's in central Israel. It's about southeast of modern day Tel Aviv. A little close to home, but not exactly in Jerusalem. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. Now, if he's sick of the palsy, sounds a lot like that man in Jesus's ministry that is the friends lowered down through the roof to be with the Savior for healing. Well, does this man have any friends to bring him to Peter? Does he even know that Peter has the same power that Jesus did and can heal him? Well, Peter just healed a lame man, so let's make this two for two. And Peter's all for that. 
in verse 34 and 35, Peter said unto him, didn't even need to be asked, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Not me. This has nothing to do with Peter, but everything to do with Jesus. He heals you. So arise, make up thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. I mean, he is exhibit A of God's power after all. And exhibit A of the apostolic advantage all over again. Not that Peter wanted to take that advantage to himself. No simony in this former Simon. But giving God the glory as always. Now, that was a fast story. Just four, what, four verses. But Peter does, it doesn't take long for Peter to change a life. Just passing through on the way, and here's a need, let me meet it. And he leaves people better than he found them. Well, the same will happen in our final story of this week, which will take us through the rest of this chapter. It bears a certain similarity to the raising of Aeneas. It's even more miraculous, though. And instead of it being about a, a man, this one has to do with a woman. Again, so, so Lucan, just like Luke, to bring in examples from the sister saints. This is one of my favorites. Her name is Tabitha. So verse 36, Now there was at Joppa, now we're all the way at the seacoast, a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And that's the first impression that Luke wants us to have for this woman. She's a disciple. She's a certain disciple, and she's certain in more ways than one. Her name is Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas. Now, full disclosure, I have a daughter named Tabitha. At least that's her middle name. And when my father-in-law, who's a scriptorian himself, when he found out that's what we were going to name his granddaughter, he chuckled and said, oh, I love the name. Beautiful story. I'm just worried for you, Jared, because as a scriptorian yourself, what are you going to do when your daughter's in oh, junior high and playing on the playground and some punk kid comes up and starts making fun of your precious little girl by calling her Dorcas? I mean, you're going to be mad that he's making fun of her, but you're going to have to be impressed with his scriptural knowledge. I'm mean, just saying. And we both laughed. Well, hopefully my daughter has avoided any snide remarks about her middle name. But either way, Tabitha and Dorcas both mean the same thing. Tabitha is the Aramaic word for gazelle, and Dorcas is the Greek word for it. Either way, this is a gazelle. And some have suggested, is it a symbolic name that suggests how she would leap into the service of others? Or is it a prophecy that she would leap back to life when, when Peter took her by the hand? You see, this incredible woman, Tabitha, full of good works. We've seen that word full several times already, right? Usually with these apostles or others, full of boldness, full of power, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Ghost. Well, she is full of something no less worth, no, no, no less worthy or worthwhile, full of good works. Her faith was always made manifest in her kindness towards others. In fact, it was alms deeds which were included among those good works. And the interesting thing there about alms deeds, the, the root of that Greek word is the Greek, or excuse me, the Greek root of that word, 
almsdeeds, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed, I mean, in, in, lately in the church, if there's one Hebrew word we've, we're learning, it's that one. It means love, it means charity, but it's, it's a covenant loving kindness. It's a powerful word for a powerful attribute more than a feeling, but it's a feeling that translates into action. You just can't keep it to yourself. That's why charity is not just something we do. It's something we feel that motivates that thing that we do. I feel charity, and therefore I want to do acts of charity for others. And that's Tabitha to a T. She was filled with that attribute, filled with chesed, filled with loving kindness that has to so full that it spilled out over the top and blessed everyone around it with things that she was doing for them. And I say doing as opposed to did because that's closer to the Greek also. Here in the King James English, it's just alms deeds which she did, which sounds like almost like a one and done. She did some good dirt deeds and then was a jerk for the rest of the day, like I joked earlier. No. The Greek there suggests the ongoing nature of this action. Other translations speak of her doing these things continuously or habitually. It's just who she was and how she was wired. She came to earth that way. Well, verse 37, it came to pass in those days that she was sick. Even saints are sometimes called upon to suffer. And in fact, more than sick, she died. And that was devastating to everyone who knew her. Just keep reading and you'll see whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. Even that phrase, upper chamber, is that reminiscent of the Last Supper? Where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples that he loved? This is a disciple that they love. They wash, they clean. They don't just go out and bury her. They, this is a viewing. They want to spend as much time with her as they can, even though she's gone. In fact... Maybe, is there a way so that she won't be gone for good? Next verse, for as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Sounds a little like Jairus, knowing that Jesus was nearby and his daughter, his precious daughter, was at the point of death. Or maybe had crossed the line already. We don't, just go, Run. And he rushes to Jesus in hopes that Jesus can do something. And here they send servants or send men to Peter in hopes that he could do something too. Verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And notice who's there. All the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Who's this Tabitha? Who's this Dorcas anyway? Oh, she gets a handful of verses, that's it. Easily forgotten. But at least we know her name. In fact, we know two of them. But who did she care about? People even less noticeable than she. Talk about the least of these. That's widows. Talk about those who need all the help they can get to find covering because they're exposed 
to a world that, that doesn't care for them. In some ways, in this moment, Tabitha becomes Boaz as he spreads his skirt over Ruth, a widow that was vulnerable as well. And here's Tabitha doing that. These are widows. And she, cover, she, she cares for them. She covers them with coats and garments. I wonder, I mean, in, again, Hebrew covering always suggests atonement. But I wonder with all of Luke's talk about temple, is there something more to these coats and garments? Are these sacred coverings? And a devout disciple is making them? We don't know much about Tabitha. She doesn't seem to be a woman of means. She, doesn't, she isn't buying these coats. She's making them. But busy with the works of her hands, clothing those in greatest need, giving to people that probably have nothing to give her in return. Tabitha is one of my all-time greatest heroines in the New Testament, in the scriptures. It's one of, it's one of the reasons I, named, I wanted to name my daughter that with her middle name. But notice the miracle that comes. Here's these weeping widows, clutching garments in grief. And Peter comes running. Verse 40 then says that Peter put them all forth. Maybe he learned that from Jesus when he raised the daughter of Jairus. Putting forth everyone else. So the room was filled with faith and faith alone. Maybe he learned this from Elijah when Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. Or Elisha, when Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. Peter was stepping into this role. And he puts them all forth and kneeled down and prayed. He knows he doesn't have the power on his own. Again, he's going to give God all the glory because he realizes God is the source of all the strength. So he prays for it. And then he turns to the body. And that's all that was there was this body but spoke to it as if it were a she. He calls her by name and said, Tabitha, arise. And this body had ears to hear. This soul re-entered its mortal tabernacle and rose. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up, probably startled to be in the presence of a, an apostle. <laughs> Better sit up here. Well, you've got every reason to be lying down. It's okay. Peter then gave her his hand and lifted her up, just like he had the layman. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, Jesus, just as Jesus had done with the daughter of Jairus. Those people who missed her most, those righteous companions, She's here. You get to be with her a little longer. In Tabitha's case, perhaps there's more coats and garments to sew for those all around you that you love. Remember that earlier phrase, things that she had done for them while she was with them. Well, people that are going to use that time so well, hmm. I'm sure they'll keep using it if God were just to give them more. And in Tabitha's case, he did. Well, news like that spreads fast. 
And so in verse 42, it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Not in Peter, right? That's exactly how Peter would want it. They believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he, Peter, tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. And there the chapter ends. Strange way to end the chapter when you're introducing a new character that you'd really never see again. What was that all about? Well, on the one hand, if he's a tanner, then he's making coverings just like Tabitha did. Is that one way to tie the two together? And in fact, if she's making coats and garments, hmm, is he making coats of skins to cover people's nakedness? I think there's endowment symbolism or nakedness being covered atonement symbolism throughout this. But also there's another tie-in, because if you're a tanner, you're working with, well, blood and guts and animal skins, and you're ritually impure as a result. And if it's your occupation, do you ever get clean? Tabitha, in a way, was unclean because she's a dead body, and you're not supposed to hang around those. And yet, Peter? Oh, I'll hang around. I'll, I'll move in with Simon. I'll go and touch the body of Tabitha in order to raise it. Peter's starting to learn that what his traditional faith considered unclean maybe isn't unclean after all. And just wait for next week, when in this same city of Joppa, he will have a vision that what God calls clean, you should not consider unclean. And from there, we're off with a message to the Gentile world. In chapter 9, God seems to be preparing Peter for that experience. And in chapter 9, he has prepared Saul to become Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. Chapter 9 is putting everything in place. Chapter 10, next week, get ready to run. Okay? But can we tie this all together in one other way as we conclude this week's lesson? You see, like I said, I have a daughter that's a Tabitha. We had all kinds of names floating around our heads, my wife and I. This was our firstborn child and wondered, what we get to name someone. And what will her name be? Better question, who will this child be? And I remember the night before my wife was to be induced, she asked for a priesthood blessing. Can't blame her. I'd be scared to death. But in that blessing, I was shocked by some of the impressions that came. Because I was there to bless my wife. Well, the Lord took advantage of the opportunity to introduce us to our daughter. And in that blessing, I just felt so clearly the spirit that was coming into our home. And the, the individual identity of the child that would be joining us the next day. And, and she was Tabitha. She was the type that would, that was wired for goodness. That was, that just wanted to do good deeds and alms deeds habitually. She actually sews and creates and paints and writes and she is 
one of the most creative people I've ever met. And typically she doesn't hold on to her creations long because usually she makes them for others far more than anything she keeps for herself. It's just, again, how she's wired. It was, and this is not something that we, <laughs> we raised her on this chapter in Acts and said, okay, have you made any coats and garments lately? No, we just, we know that you're a giving soul. Little did we know how <laughs> scripturally accurate she would end up being. But as she grew up and got older, it was just fascinating to go, oh, yeah, that's our little Tabitha. Doing just what Tabitha did. So call her Dorcas, if you will. <laughs> She's our gazelle, and she leaps to the rescue of others, to the service of others whenever she can. Uh, widows, especially, as she works in memory care as a CNA, wanting to become a nurse, wanting to help the most vulnerable in society. There's a part of me that wants to be more like my daughter because there's a part of me that wants to be more like Tabitha because there's a big part of me that wants to be more like Jesus. And her story seems to be woven together as a weaver herself, woven together with so many other amazing examples in scripture. And it's as if she wants to weave us in right alongside her. So the last thing I'll say is how her story is woven together with the other stories in this chapter. And this was the insight that blew me away years ago as I pondered, why put all these stories together in the same chapter? And I know a chapter is a kind of an arbitrary distinction or division in the book, but why would Luke string these together? You could put it that way. Uh, and then it dawned on me. It's all the same story because chapter nine of Acts is all about new life and new feet and new faith. In fact, to use the conversion of Saul and the raising of Tabitha as the bookends with the healing of Aeneas, just quick blip in the middle. It's as if Luke is trying to find some kind of an analogy for what just happened with Saul, because the, the story that's most famous in this chapter is Saul's conversion. A change so dramatic that everything would be altered, including his own name. I have a completely new identity. And what is that? What is that miracle of repentance and real conversion? Is it a setting of someone back on their feet? Well, yes, it is the healing of Aeneas. And however long you've been down and out, in your sinful state, the Lord can come and pick you up and put you back on your feet. That's beautiful. But it's so much more than that. Real conversion, real repentance, true forgiveness is more than just picking you up and putting you on your feet. It's raising you from the dead. It is a, an entirely new life that he offers you. More time to do more good. And Tabitha exemplifies that. Her story is Saul's story, and his is hers. And I pray that theirs is ours, that we can come into Christ with pure motives and righteous desires, that we can study scripture and try to come to understand it, that we can sprint up alongside one another's chariots and join one another in our journey and help one another see Christ everywhere we might look. 
I pray that we can let the scales drop off and have eyes to see. I pray that we can give one another the benefit of the doubt and let people change. And I pray more than on anything that we will let the Lord change us. If you've spent your whole life as a Tabitha, or if you have some years of Saul-like sin in your past, either way, come unto Christ and find new life in Him.